Restaurant Unstoppable, episode 1049 with Chef Peter Campbell. I agree with you 100%. I think a lot of people, when they first open especially, they feel like, well, you know, I'm there every day. I'm the one that's closing the place. I'm the one that's opening the place. And unfortunately, if you're not writing down these things that, that take place, you can't go back and reflect on it. And eventually, over time, that Groundhog Day gets, becomes very blurry. And you lose track of what happened and how do we learn from it. Instead, you just become exhausted. Are you ready for it factors, success stories, failures, and bombs of restaurant industry knowledge? Then, join Eric Cacciatore and today's incredible guest as they share what it takes to become unstoppable. If you're tired of the other tater, you ought to try Tater Cakes because it's time to serve the tater your guests deserve. Tater Cakes are shredded potatoes mixed with delicious flavors. All the best parts of a baked potato in the perfect handheld package from the freezer to the fryer to the guest. Serve them in a variety of different ways and in different applications. Great for dining, delivery, and to go. With all the uncertainties of the world today, we should be able to be certain that our food always has great flavor. And Tater Cakes provides that comfort in every bite. Request samples at tatercakes.com. That's T-A-T-E-R-K-E-G-S.com, tatercakes.com. This episode brought to you by Owner.com. Owner.com is the leading all-in-one platform for restaurant marketing. Owner.com powers everything from SEO-optimized websites, direct online ordering, automated email and text marketing, built-in loyalty programs, zero commission delivery, and branded mobile apps for your restaurant that's integrated right into your POS. With Owner.com, there's no contract, no hidden fees, and nothing to lose. Join thousands of restaurant owners using Owner.com to grow direct online sales, save thousands in third-party fees, and simplify their online ordering presence all in one. Book a free demo today at owner.com slash unstoppable and see why owner.com is the number one rated restaurant marketing software. My name is Eric Cacciatore. I'm the founder and host of Restaurant Unstoppable Podcast. The Predictive Index, or PI, is a talent optimization platform that helps build happier and more productive teams. With the PI software, you will lower employee turnover, train your managers to be leaders, and keep your employees engaged. You can try PI for free and receive a 30-minute consultation from a certified PI partner, Ed Doherty, from One Degree Coaching. Head to restaurantunstoppable.com slash try PI. This episode is brought to you by Restaurant Systems Pro, and they are launching their first time ever 60-day pilot program. This is something that's never been done before. This 60-day event is at no cost to you, but it's not for everyone. Fred Langley, CEO of Restaurant Systems Pro, will be leading a group of restaurateurs through the Restaurant System Pro software and setting up the systems for your restaurants. Fred will teach you recipe costing cards, guidance in your books for accounting, cash control, sales forecasting, checklist, budgeting for the entire year, scheduling for profit, it more butts and seats and that's not it if you are interested in this head over to www.restaurantunstoppable.com slash rsp that's rsp for restaurant systems pro www.restaurantunstoppable.com slash rsp with excitement allow me to introduce you today's guest 
chef owner of Red Wagon Pizza Co. Peter Campbell, my man Pete, are you feeling unstoppable today? Eric, I sure am. Dude, I am psyched for today's conversation. Uh, you were referred to me by a mutual friend, Bobby Marcotte, and he... I, this guy I have a lot of respect for. So if he's referring you to me, I know it's going to be good. And I actually was able to come in last night and do a little undercover guest experience. Sneaky. And I did a little research. And I have so many questions for you, man. And I, I just I have a feeling this is going to be really good. Even in the 30 minutes we've been talking before we hit record on today's episode. So I cannot wait to dive into it. But before we do, let's get that motivational, inspirational ball rolling with a success quote or a mantra. What do you got for us? You know, you asked that, and I think that I struggle with a, a bumper sticker version of a mantra. For for me, there's so many different things that I talk about a lot here with my team, with my uh, family. Uh, I think the, the, one of the key tenets to success, in my opinion, is not feel, fearing failure. What does that mean to you? I think we as people, we don't want to fail. We want to we want to be successful at whatever we do, and oftentimes when we do anything, whatever it might be, we kind of run life with a governor that kind of holds us back a little bit because we don't want to push it too hard because what happens if we fail? Right. And I, I don't like that. I really kind of feel like drill it down, man. Put it into the wall. You'll learn a bunch. Yeah. You'll figure out you shouldn't have turned as tight. You shouldn't have pushed it. Shouldn't have tried to get too many orders in. The oven can't handle that many pizzas in one hour. You know, you learn stuff quick. Right, right. And what's going through my mind as I hear you say this is that, you know, first of all, like mindset is 100% the biggest hurdle I, I believe to overcome in this industry is just that, 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 that narrative we tell in our head, these emotions, these fears, like all these things telling us, like bubbling up inside of us. That is, you are not your emotions. Right. And that's, know? that's not just this profession. It's, it, it it's is everybody, everyone. Every, it's every, the yeah, human condition for sure. And uh, the other thing that comes into my mind too, is like nobody is thinking about you and what you're doing as much as you're thinking about you and what you're doing. Exactly. Nobody gives a fuck. Nobody cares. <laughs> like, so like just go and people will forgive you and don't hold yourself to these crazy expectations. So yeah. That's, that's a great way to start today's conversation. Uh, and where does it make sense to start sharing your story? Like take me to the beginning. Oh gosh. Well, I think as far as my story with food, that goes back to early childhood, specifically with pizza. It was a family tradition growing up in Detroit. My mom and my brothers and my dad would make pizza every Friday night. Eventually, my little sister came along when I was seven, and we started including her in this uh, family tradition. But it dates back prior to that to Wyckoff, New Jersey, in the basement of my grandfather's house. And they, it was a kind of a weekly tradition, very much like it was in everyone's household across America. I mean, what year is this? So in the 50s is when it really took off in, in, with my, my mom's family in Wyckoff. Um, but that was also kind of quintessential for the entire country. I mean, pizza came to our shores in the turn of the century, the previous century. So 1900 is when we started seeing pizzerias in New York and New Haven. Uh, and then eventually, after World War II, pizza started to come to the middle of the country. Right. right? That's when Pizza Hut, Domino's, and all the big brands that we know today, Little Caesars, those all popped up in the middle of the country. And it all fostered and supported that kind of weekly tradition of the family pizza night. The right. difference was in my family, we did it at home. And it was built after my grandfather, uh, Wilbur Hunt, Buck Hunt. Uh, and he would make pizzas every weekend at his house. He would only make cheese pizza. There's, there's no, only crushed tomatoes, San Marzano. He was very into the Italian styling. 
And we just kind of transcended from there, from generation to generation. No, not at all. Okay. No. Um, I'm an Irish kid. I'm I was going to say. <laughs> uh, and he was in New Jersey when this was going. Yes. Yeah. Wyckoff. I was actually curious about that because I knew that it was with the, the Italian population on the, the, the Northeast, like the coast specifically. I knew it didn't, like the, that Italian style didn't really make it out this far. Until recently, um, you saw there was different renditions of pizza. Like people would try to recreate that experience, and it was it feels like the further west it got, the thicker the crust got. I agree, <laughs> and I think that's that's that was some of the national chains because yeah. people didn't go out for pizza here in the middle of the country. It was delivered like that's, and now it's most commonly pizza is delivered. It's not done in restaurants. You know, Pizza Hut. We all remember the pan pizza with the red cup and. The gut bomb pizzas that we that weren't gut bomb pizzas when we were ten years old; those were sit down pizzerias. However, uh, most pizza in our country was done through delivery, and that meant it needed to be able to withstand the travel from the oven. Because every pizza, no matter what, dies the second you put it in a box. Right. right. And the hotter that pizza is, the faster it dies. I mean, I'm interested to get into that. I try not to talk about food on the podcast okay. because we we like you're opening a restaurant. I hope you can cook. Right? Can you do everything else? Uh, so, I mean, I could I could geek out on pizza stuff forever. Though. Sure. But were you working in restaurants before you started your 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 like your you're at the the farmers markets right? In well, in, in twelve we started in the farmers markets. But prior to that, if you were to go back in time, started making pizzas when I was two years old. So when it came time for me to get a job, my first job ever was picking strawberries at a, a local apple orchard. Okay. I learned really quickly at age thirteen that the basket needed to actually have strawberries in it. So I was quickly fired. Um, all the baskets I would bring back. So were empty. Plus, you were at an apple farm picking strawberries, man. You're getting it wrong. <laughs> I was eating too many strawberries in the field, so they canned me. And my next job after that was at Arby's, and that was my first job in a in a kitchen. And I kind of fell in love with the culture. And as I tried to navigate jobs through my high school years, I always gravitated to kitchens, and specifically in the pizza world. So, okay. Pizza Hut, Domino's. Uh, in town here, Cassetta's Pizzeria in St. Paul I worked for in high school. Through college, I worked at a place in Boston called Woody's Grill and Tap. Okay. And uh, I loved that. I was, that's where, that was my last job in kitchens before I opened Red Wagon. What did you go to school for? Well, I went to college uh, as an English major. Okay. Um, I went to five high schools in four years and wow. three colleges in four. And I grew up in the late 80s, early 90s as a dyslexic ADD. Dude, ADHD. me too, man. And they didn't know how to deal with us Dude, at all. This is a subject I want to go deeper into because there is absolutely a correlation between successful restaurant tours and being ADHD and dyslexic. I, I like. You don't see as many successful people in different verticals uh, that, really? that have. I don't think like definitely entrepreneurs. You know, I would agree there. Definitely entrepreneurs. Yep. Like I would say is it's kind of, but I just it's it's, it's absolutely a pattern, dude. Like I would say wow. at least a third of the people I talk to are just like almost like ADHD and or dyslexic. That's like. impressive, isn't it? It is. Maybe not a third. Maybe I'm exaggerating a little I bit, like but it, it seems like a lot. <laughs> <laughs> so how was that? What was that like? What was that challenge for you? So for for high school, I, I just kept getting bounced around because at that time there wasn't the acceptable learning like window was if you were advanced, you were in AP classes, and if you were kind of below the threshold, you went to more special ed classes. And the public school system really didn't know how to deal with us mm. at that stage. And so my dad put me into more like uh, parochial and college prep level schools where they were geared to the AP kids, not me. I'm surprised you did English. With so being mine was dyslexic. to prove a point. 
Okay, dude. Wow. So, we have a lot in common. <laughs> Keep going. I got kicked out of a lot of high schools, mostly for grades. Okay. And then when I went to college, uh, <laughs> I got kicked out of a couple schools. And in an effort to hide that, I went onto the World Wide Web on Netscape and I typed in number one university in the world for learning disabled students. And I found Curry College in Milton, Massachusetts. Okay. And uh, I called the main number on the splash page, talked to Ken Quigley, the then and I think current president of the school. And I negotiated my way into having an interview halfway through the school year and uh, went down excited to my, tell my dad that I got an interview at the school. I left off the fact that I had just gotten kicked out of another university. <laughs> Smart. <laughs> <laughs> um, and anyway, so when I finally got into Curry, I, I felt like I had finally found a school that that knew how to work with me and try to learn. And so when I looked at what did I really want to do, I knew what I wanted to do. I wasn't going to learn in school. I wasn't becoming a doctor. I wasn't becoming a lawyer. I knew what I needed was self-confidence. And for me, that was learning the English language. Okay, so this is kind of my follow-up question was, how did it make you feel as a young man when you weren't doing well in school? I don't know. Honestly, I gave up in school third grade. Uh, you know, I, I knew I wasn't going to be successful in school, and I wouldn't find uh, acceptance and in inclusion with my community and peers through education, through being a smart guy. Yeah. I knew I could entertain people and I could make people laugh, so yeah. I became the class clown in third grade. And I just ran with it. Yeah. And it wasn't until, you know, the first or second years into my college level years, uh, my early 20s, late teens, that it really dawned on me that the future was in front of me and I was ill-equipped for it because yeah. I had no confidence. I hadn't, mm. I hadn't ever achieved anything I was proud of. Right. And so when I had the opportunity to go to this school in Milton, Mass., I just said, hey, the heck with it. I'm going to go for something that, I mean, I was kicked out of school and one of the teachers told me that I was excused from learning Spanish because I was too stupid to learn English. How I could they expect me? after one semester, dude. Yeah. So <laughs> I, I don't totally know. get it. I, to me, so my education at that point in my life but was how like, that make you feel when she said that to you? Oh, horrible. Are you right. kidding me? It was awful. My, my relationship with education is, is garbage, but that's also why I love teaching people. I love to educate people because I try to figure out how do they learn um, and it's easy because food is specifically is it's easy to learn with your hands right. and talking. Right. Uh, there's not a lot of writing stuff down and taking tests. And mm -hmm. when I teach people yeah. in my craft, um, at any rate, so I went to Curry. I graduated as an English major, and I all through college I was working at Woody's Grill and Tap in Boston, which is a dynamite pizzeria in the kitchen. In the kitchen and as a server and as a bartender, I was kind of all over the place. Before we get into Woody's, I just want to kind of bring something to the surface because. Again, man, I really resonate with your story, uh, and to, to when, especially when you said I went into call, or to English to prove something. Uh, and this is we're here to tell your story, but I just want to share my element of that. So, also dyslexic, colorblind, ADHD. I became a commercial pilot. My God! And I was a commercial pilot until I was twenty-seven years old, and I resigned. But I, to, to your point, I did it to prove something. You know, to people who? to my. And this, this isn't, this isn't a, a, a dig on my dad, but to my dad, because he told me that I shouldn't go to college. And it wasn't because he didn't think I couldn't do it. It was because he knew that I was different in the sense that I, I'm not necessarily, quote unquote, college material in the sense of like, there's other avenues for you. Go learn sure. a trade. Go, go into the military. Hindsight being 2020, and he loves it when I say this, he was right. You know, he loves it when I say this. He was so right. Um, but that's that, like, and I think that there's also something to be said about people who 
or gravitate to this industry, I've noticed that there's a correlation between dyslexia and social and emotional intelligence. And I think that the, I think there's so many different forms of intelligence and we're just starting to dive into the spectrum of intelligence that is. And I, I don't think we really acknowledge social and emotional. You said you were the class clown. You knew how to make people laugh. Mm-hmm. You knew social, like, you know, like, and I think that there's the brain is so like we, we give up some things to gain other things. And I think that's one thing that's going on in the mind of a dyslexic person is like we're not strong in those areas, but we tend to be really strong in those other places. What, yeah. What's going through your mind as I'm saying this? Also no, creativity. I'm agreeing. Yeah. Uh, what was the last thing you said? Creativity. Yeah, I think it's resonating what you're saying because I think you're right. Um, I can read a room. I can't read a book right. real well. Right. <laughs> Audiobooks are saving grace. Yeah, man. they are. They're the best. <laughs> so great. Yeah. Uh, podcasts are right. awesome. Sorry. Right. Shameless no. plug. Um but yeah, I guess you nailed it. I I think that we just we think differently, yeah. and and we operate differently. Well, I just wanted to prove a point. If you are listening to this, there's a good chance maybe a quarter of my listeners are dyslexic. You're not stupid. No, you're just different. And lean into your strengths and know that if you if people like you, if people gravitate towards you. That's a fucking superpower, man. Yeah, like you can you can well shift the world. You're in, you're an influencer. Yeah, and it starts know? with you believing in you. Yeah, and that's what I think is the key. Yeah, for sure. So pick up your train of thought. You're at Woody's. Woody's Grill and Tap yep. in uh, Massachusetts, uh, in Boston. Man, that was a ball. I loved it there. And this place is such an influence on what we did there. I mean, it was a beer and wine pizza joint, and it was just. I loved it there. In fact, after I think we had, we hire a lot of young people here. You know, in their high school, first job, busing tables, server support, things like that. Um, I think one of my proudest moments in creating this place is not just the connections that I've made with the people that uh, I've had the honor of working with, but there was a young lady who was working here that was going off to school in Boston. And I was like, you should go get a job at Woody's. (laughs) And she did. And she worked there for five years. And I called the owner and I was like, hey, uh, this is Pete Campbell from... uh, you know, the late nineties, <laughs> no memory of me. It was how many kids must go through? I a pizza can't place even imagine. I know how many go through it here right. in Boston. I right. can't even imagine. That's how I feel with guests. Yeah. Oh gosh. <laughs> uh, so this sounds like this is re- where you really like fell in love with the industry and like you're hooked. You loved it when you were younger, but this is like this is is this where you're like now your your frontal lobes developing. You're getting a little more self aware coming into adulthood. Is this kind of like were you thinking to yourself, I want to do this for the rest of my life, or what year is it when you this graduated? This was in, uh, I graduated from college in 98. Okay. So I worked there from like, I want to say 96, 97, 98. Okay. I was at Woody's. Um, I don't know if that was the moment. I think when I first started in kitchens, when I was like, when I was working and spinning out doughs for, you know, Cassettas in St. Paul, okay. which was just high volume, man. They crank it out. I knew that I fell in love with the the entertainment side of it. You know, people were really, they really enjoyed watching yes, the artistry of, of, of what we did. For sure. Um, and for me, at that stage in my life, it was a confidence booster. Um, I wasn't confident in school. I wasn't confident in my peer relationships as much because I, I was constantly jumping from school to school to school to school. So my peer groups were kind of all over the map. Um, so by the time I got to Woody's, I think that was where kind of everything came together where I felt not only did I fit in, but I also felt that I brought something to the table more than just feeling confident in the space that, you know, 
I felt like I could connect with people and consumers and and my peers, and it was kind of it was a full circle moment. You, is it safe to say you felt seen, valued? No, I don't think I felt valued. Okay, uh, I think I felt in myself certainly, but I don't think I had I I don't think I was aware enough to understand what it what it feels to feel valued by someone else. But you had self value at this point. At this point is when I started to value me. Yeah, because you you're finally feeling like hey, there's something I can do, something right. I'm good, something I don't feel like I'm bad at. Exactly. Yeah. I was also just about to graduate with an English major. Yeah. I had turned off that switch of like, I'm dumb, which that's like the worst thing you can say to someone, let alone to yourself. Yeah. And I've said that to myself for I, the I, better part of my life. And that's that what stage. I was trying to get out of you earlier is like, did you feel stupid? Oh, I totally. know that I felt like the biggest idiot in the world. And it wasn't until my aviation career of leaning into my weaknesses mm-hmm. that I had to rely on my strengths absolutely i think that's the key is that when you lean into your weaknesses you find that edge of growth right and i had people like i knew i wasn't i wasn't so like i could fly the plane well i was a good quote-unquote stick is what they would call like Mm -hmm. i was good on like landings takeoffs like i was good at controlling the aircraft where i struggled was the technicality thing like like having somebody read a long clearance to me and me having to read it back that kind <laughs> yeah. of stuff putting in numbers backwards scared the shit out of me yeah you know like i'm gonna hurt myself or somebody else even worse yeah. or get my license revoked like i every day was anxiety for me which Yikes. is why i walked away from aviation but uh, i convinced myself that i was dumb you know like i but then at the same time i was also being told during this time that the reason you were pushing you through the program, the reason why we want to see you be successful within this program is because we like you and you bust your ass wow. and you put more effort. And so I discovered in that, in that moment that, and it feels weird for me to say that, you know, uh, that uh, to admit that I'm likable, if it feels very egotistical, right? Oh. But, um, in that moment I recognized that I had an amazing work ethic and I'm willing to do the work. And mm-hmm. I'm also like that if people like you, they'll bring you along the way. And yeah. so I decided at that moment to lean into my strengths. And That's like, awesome. Yeah. Sorry. I'm That's high, all right. Can, we, uh, can I ask you some more questions? <laughs> yeah, go <laughs> <over>. <laughs> <laughs> uh, But anyway, back to your story, man. Uh, it's, it's just your, your story is really resonating with me. So I felt, I love I felt obligated to, to reciprocate and share. Um, and you are very likable. Thank you. I appreciate that. <laughs> I appreciate that. And you set up a podcast incredibly well and efficiently. I mean, the get some the production <laughs> quality here. It looks like a team of people should have set this up. Repetitions matters, man. <laughs> it sure does. Uh, so back to that story. So 2000, or sorry, 1998 to 2012. So 14 years pass yeah. before you dive into your career as a pizza owner. What was going on during that time? Well, I had, and I had solved the education question and the confidence question. Once I graduated from school, that was just, I had stamp it done, completed. At that point, it was, what do I want to do with the rest of my life? And I was more focused on love than I was on a career. So like a relationship? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I, uh, I had been dating a young lady that lived in Pennsylvania. And um, at, when I graduated, we had we had been broken up. We're back together at this stage. Ultimately, this was the late nineties where you could fall off a truck and make a lot of money. Like your first jobs out of college, it was easy to find a job. The economy was booming. Uh, there were no questions of whether I could get employment. It was more what entry level job do I want? And also I was at a point in my life where had I stayed in the hospitality and restaurant world, I think my, I would have, it was highly discouraged 
for my family to go that path. Yeah. And so, you know, I'm a big people pleaser and I wanted to make sure that I, I went down the path I was supposed to go down. Yeah. And, and I don't think that my parents or my peers would have looked down on me. I think that story was mostly in my head where I felt that my father specifically would have discouraged it. So I didn't even go down that path. It was the nine, it was the late nineties. And you, you could, like I said, you could get a job anywhere. And so I started interviewing for positions in Philadelphia so I could be closer to my girlfriend. And I think I interviewed at five places and I literally picked it based on, again, I'm, I'm 20, maybe 21 just turned. And I think I got full relocation. Like they came and packed my stolen pint glasses from my apartment <laughs> in JP and <laughs> moved me to Philly. It just didn't make any sense. So they like, being your, your, your girlfriend or fiance at this point or girlfriend? Uh, uh, no, who, what's that? Wait, who, who's they? They, they, Oh, the, the company that hired me. And what was it that you were doing? I was oh, I, my first job out of school. I was at, on like an inbound call center for mortgages. Okay, so this now, was like the so sales, I, yeah, based or not sales, customer support. It was kind of sales. I was a I was a I had to go through uh, training to basically approve people over the phone to buy a home. So now you're leaning into your strengths as being likable. Ideally, that was the yeah. plan, and uh, <laughs> I, I realized quickly I did not like sitting at a call center no, desk. I can't so. I moved down to Philly. I asked uh, my then girlfriend to marry me. She said yes within six months. We were back in Boston. I had uh, gone to the company that had relocated me and said, I hate this job. And I got a job as like an outside kind of connector of people. It was uh, the company I worked same for. Same company? Or same company. Okay. They own the franchise rights to like Coldwell Banker, okay. Century 21, ERA. Okay. And uh, you're from Boston, right? Yep. So Coldwell Banker Hunneman. Okay. Have you heard of this? Yeah, 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 they yeah. had a big chain of Coldwell. Coldwell definitely sounds familiar. Coldwell Banker had a big chain of, I think it was 80 offices of Hunnaman. And my job was to be the representative between the offices and the corporation. Okay. So I would go to these 83 offices. And the next eldest person in my role was, I want to say, 25 years my elder. Okay. So I was not in the right position. Anyway, so I bounced around from job to job. Again, just trying to do what I felt I was supposed to do. I was getting married. We got married in Cambridge, Massachusetts. Uh, we got uh, bought our first house outside of the city, and uh, my wife was at Harvard doing DNA genetics research, and life was pretty great. So you, you know, so you married a nerd. I married a nerd. Totally <laughs> good I call. Married so far above my weight class. Like, so say I'm so surprised she's still with me. But anyways, it's good yes. balance. It's good balance. So she's pretty terrific, and life's going well. We get married, we buy the house, we do all the things you're supposed to do. Uh, 2003, we get a kind of a, a bug in our ear about not really wanting to like lay roots in the East Coast. Why is that? Uh, we didn't have a lot of family around us out there. We, we were kind of on an island. Cost of living, too. Man. Cost of living super yeah. high. We got married in 2000, and we tried to look for a, a, a house to buy for two years, and it went from like... Downtown Boston to eventually, you know, Natick, Framingham, yeah. Sudbury, and eventually Those are multi-million like, dollar houses now. Right, they were then, <laughs> yeah. and we eventually found a place in like Shrewsbury, Mass, which is Mass, which is just outside of Worcester, okay. which is an hour and a half each wow. way commute for Jackie. On route ninety too. It awful. Wolf. So yeah, we spent fight. seventeen months there, and we basically were like, "Let's, where do we want to go?" So we had family in Jersey, we had family in different spots around the United States. 
I had gone to high school here in Minnesota. So my brothers were here and by 2004, February of 2004, we moved back. Okay. And at that stage in my career, I had bopped around and, uh, I was acquiring real estate for wireless companies. That's what I did. It was called the uh, site acquisition. So they would give me a global position, a lat long, and like AT&T, Verizon Wireless, and then I would give them a building permit to construct. Okay. I'd have to figure out who owns the land. Is it leased the right way? Is it leasable? I would lease it. Is it zonable? I would go through and get it zoned. It was meeting with... I mean, still, all these things you're describing sound like a horrible life for somebody with your strengths. <laughs> really? No, because you seem like the social emotional, right? Like, as far as, like, the work you're doing. Like, it sounds like you haven't found... You weren't doing the work that you were meant to do at this point. Is that what you thought? I would like? agree with that. Okay. However, at That's that I time, I was on the road. Uh, it was a lot of windshield time. I was out talking to farmers, okay. talking to building owners. Uh, I, was, I would go out and I'd say, hey, all right, you guys grow alfalfa here. And I want to take up a hundred foot by hundred foot piece of land, and I'm going to pay you a thousand, two thousand dollars a month for the okay. next thirty years. Who wants the deal? So I see your strengths shining through in that, for right? Sure. So I work with the community. Then I'd have to go and present the whole package to the county board or the city council, the planning commission, neighborhood meetings, and then it would run all of these systems all the way through to the point relationships. Where it was all relationships. Yep. A lot of windshield time. Yep. And I was really good at it. Um, I would, we were building at that time, the company I was with, about 700 cell sites a year from literally from Maine to Montana. Okay. And I was licensed as a real estate professional in nine states. So I read states. that wrong. I read that wrong for sure. Well, no. I was, <laughs> while I was on the road, it was great. Yeah. And then I started having kids. Ah. So 2005 hits and my daughter's born. And that's where a bunch of things switched in my life. I didn't want to be on the road anymore. So... And the business I was working for, they saw how good I was at what I was doing, and they said, "We want you to train people to do this." Okay. And then I became I was really a desk then. jockey, okay, which was great. The desk thing was fine. I made good money, but I didn't enjoy it. I hated it. What made you good at what you were doing? I think understanding the process of juggling all the balls, because it was it wasn't like everything started at step one. I'd have, you know, I'd have 90 cell sites in production at varying degrees of the process. So it was just managing fires, which is very much like what, what do I do here. What do you mean by managing fires? So, so I, I've got 10 steps to get a, a development from incubation to I'm going to dig a hole in the ground. Okay. And along, those, those pa- along that path, things go south, right? The, the drawings didn't get to the building official or... The structural engineer wants another document. And so he's always constantly putting fires out. But when you say putting out fires, what do you literally mean? Um, making sure that the building official has the A&E drawings they need from the architectural engineering firm on time. Solving pr- problems. Solving problems. So is it de- what do you mean by de-escalation? Is it the, like the, what do you mean by that? I think sometimes it was de-escalation. So if it was a neighborhood issue. So if we were building a cell site in, for example, a, a high net worth community where the people didn't want it in their backyard, but they wanted the ability to use their phone, we'd have to make it a stealth site, make it look like a church steeple. So problem solving solution. Constantly and, problem solving. And and that's think, what I mean by fires. I was okay. always putting out fires, which is solving problems. Well, I mean, what, I mean again, like you said, that's what you do here. And that's I feel exactly like, what I do here. Yeah, and that's what I think a good owner does is we exist to serve the people around us and make exactly. sure that the, 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 the technicians, the specialists, the talent can do what they do. And we're also de-escalating things constantly between whether it's between employees mm-hmm. or the guests and the guests and the employee. Like we're constantly putting out fires. So, exactly. Um, what advice do you have for putting out like, like the, the, I mean, is that 
more geared? Is it? I mean, is there something there for us? I guess. Is it yeah, I mean, then putting up fires or de-escalating. It's remove yourself from the equation. You're the ref. If you're in it, you are the problem. Remove yourself from it and try to de-escalate it. Right. Okay. Um, you want me to use more words? Yeah, get a little bit deeper. I feel, I feel like I'm put, picking up what you're putting down, but really just paint that picture. What do you mean remove yourself from it? Why can't you be in it? So I think a lot of times when we're going to solve an issue, there's the ego and emotional mm-hmm. side of that problem solving, right? Whether it was back in the, in the previous career of mine where uh, the A&E firm didn't get the drawings to this, the city council in time. Well, instead of worrying about applying fault, let's worry about solving, Right. Was it my fault I didn't get there? Whose fault was it? We can do all of that later. First, let's figure out how to solve the problem. Remove yourself. So here, if uh, the oven stops working or something didn't show up or why don't we have arugula, instead of figuring out, like, or we refired a pizza here. Why, why are we refiring it? Well, we're in the heat of battle right now. Let's not try to unpack why this has happened. Let's figure out how we fix it. Yeah, and then we can deal with the... Don't focus on the past. Focus on the future. Exactly. So... I think a lot of people, especially like we, talk, we talked about a little earlier, failure. I think people, when you're problem solving, there's, an, there's an, a presence of a fail in that equation, right? Something has not gone to plan. Yeah. And oftentimes when failure exists, we worry about the emotional side of it. Where do I fit in that equation? Is it my fault? Am I to blame? And we worry about that too long that we lose sight of actually solving the, the problem. Right. Yeah. Like so that's remove what, yourself from it. Yeah. And first seek to understand, then seek to be understood is kind of what I understand what I'm here. Like figure 100%. it out, figure it out. And if you're again, if you're in it, your, your emotion is likely swelled. You're not thinking rationally. Exactly. You're thinking emotionally. So having being able to get outside of it and look from the outside in and empathize mm-hmm. with the, the parties that are the players and just figuring that out and like finding the solution where we can come in the middle, like those win win situations is what I'm hearing. From. Exactly. And I think it's important to remember and you know, I'm a big 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 fan of journaling so mm. writing down like what was the fail what took place reflect later and say all right post, what can we learn what's yeah. the postmortem on this situation do you do like post shift meetings uh, we it- do a, we do a, like a nightly manager's log mm. where we kind of write down the high points low points what took place okay and we we can learn a lot from that and what that really does is just creates a constant yeah. conversation going on around the team that was one of the biggest lessons i learned as a commercial pilot and that's something that i think the restaurant industry could do better about is the, the debrief there's yeah a, there's the brief most restaurants brief like, yeah this is who we have coming in today these are like our reservations this is what we're trying to be better about but they never do the debrief they never follow up afterwards i agree with you 100 yeah. percent. i think a lot of people when they first open especially they feel like well, you know, I'm there every day. I'm the one that's closing the place. I'm the one that's opening the place. And unfortunately, if you're not writing down these things that, that take place, you can't go back and reflect on yeah. it. And eventually, over time, that Groundhog Day gets, yep. becomes very blurry. Right, right. And you lose track of I love this. what happened and how do we learn from it. Yeah, Instead, dude. you just become exhausted. I'm totally loving this conversation. I can't believe we're already 35 minutes into the recording. Oh. And we haven't even gotten to the point where you open your restaurant yet. No. But we're usually at that time. We're usually, so, between, so how long were you doing this? Because it sounds like you found your lane. You, you found like you're able to use your, your strengths, your skills as an individual to be the, the mitigator, the, the, the person in the middle um how long were you doing this uh, or was there any other thing that came in be- between this and when you opened your restaurant or started doing your pop-ups no i think that the um the real estate and kind of being on the road that whole thing ran from 
essentially, except for the one year I was riding the desk uh, in 99, it was uh, essentially from 2000 until 2014. Oh, wow. Is when eventually I quit that full time job entirely. Okay. Um, were you making good money? I was making okay money. Okay. I, I mean, it was. Um, Something I should have warned you about. I, try, I like to talk about weird things. Oh, yeah, show. we can talk about Relationships them. and money, which are things that people don't like to talk about for obvious reasons, but I think we need to talk about I it. I think it, exactly. That's it's, the problem. We shouldn't be in a place where we don't talk about I money. I think that's why this industry is where it is, because yeah. we don't talk about relationships or money. I would agree with you. Yeah. I would agree with you 100%. So I think now is actually a great time to take a break to thank our sponsors. We'll be right back to talk about how Red Wagon Pizza Co. came to be. If you're tired of the other tater, you ought to try tater cakes because it's time to serve the tater your guests deserve. Tater cakes are shredded potatoes mixed with delicious flavors. All the best parts of a baked potato in the perfect handheld package. From the freezer to the fryer to your guests, tater cakes comes in a variety of flavors, including bacon, cheddar, chive, buffalo chicken, bacon, jalapeno, and more. And I got to hone in a little bit deeper here on this deliciousness. Bacon, cheddar, chive features creamy cheddar cheese, big bacon bites, sour cream and a hint of chives and of course crispy crunchy potatoes Mm, sign me up for that you can serve them in a variety of different ways and in many different applications great for dining delivery and to go with all the uncertainties in the world today we should be certain that our food always has great flavor and tater cakes provides that comfort in every bite request samples at taterkegs.com that's t-a-t-e-r-k-e-g-s.com taterkegs.com This episode made possible by Owner.com. Owner.com is the quickest and easiest way for your customers to order directly from you without the expensive 30% commission fees. With Owner.com, you'll save thousands every month when customers order through your website and branded app instead of third-party delivery apps and reward your customers with a built-in loyalty program that turns them into regulars who order again and again. Owner.com also helps you rank higher on Google with world-class search engine optimization built specifically for restaurants with an AI-powered website. We cannot forget lists. Build a huge list of people who live near your restaurant fast and market to that list on autopilot with text and email sent at the perfect time to help you grow sales and stay top of mind. Owner.com gives you everything you need to grow and market your restaurant online with no contracts or hidden fees. Visit Owner.com slash unstoppable right now to book your free demo and see why thousands of restaurant owners trust owner.com to power their restaurants online. Ready? Yeah. We're back. (laughs) We're back. And um, I'm curious. I I don't want to make sure we didn't skip over anything. So like I said, we kind of like you told us what you were doing before Red Wagon. Um, Were there any key bits of your story? before starting like what led into the, the farmers markets oh i love where we're headed now so i call that era of time from 2000 to 14 and is kind of the world of supposed to's right especially 2000 to 2005 those first five years of marriage at least in my life i was really down this channel of well, i'm supposed to do these things i'm supposed to drive this car i'm supposed to live in this kind of house at least in my head i have this vision of what successful life looks like. So it was materialistic at this point. Not necessarily materialistic. It was more just, and it didn't matter what that thing was, but I had a vision of what I wanted in my life. What did you want? 
Well, at that point, I knew I, I wanted a house that I could have a family in. I knew I wanted to be in a safe community. Mm-hmm. I know I wanted a reliable car. Mm-hmm. I'd down a path of a couple of uh, clunkers. So <laughs> I'd spent that. way too much on transmissions. Uh, it, it, it was not that it wasn't like I, I didn't want to live in like the mansion. It wasn't that about that. So I, uh, it was more about S- security. It was about security, and it was it was about that feeling of the supposed to. Mm. That I'm not, I am not going to be a success, and until I do this thing, or until I achieve this level, it's the feeling of supposed to. So is that like the the pressure society puts on you to be a certain way, or that I'd like to be able to hand that off to society? But I think it's something that society has definitely influenced in us as people. But I think we need to own it, and at least I feel I do in the early part of my life with my wife Jackie. I think we fell into this world of you know. We're not going to talk about the hard stuff. We're just, you know, grin and bear it. We're doing what we're supposed to do. And um, we eventually put all that down. It was 2005 when my daughter was born. So this feeling of supposed to, is this the keeping up with the Joneses mentality? I think a little bit of that. Okay. I think a little bit of that. And I, I think the keeping up with the Joneses piece is definitely materialistic. Like, yeah. look what the Joneses are driving. Should I be driving that? And that's not really what was driving me. Um, I grew up in the... I was born in the seventies. I grew up in the eighties and nineties and you know, I didn't really talk about like the money part of life with my parents and my family. It was just, you're supposed to go to school and then you're supposed to go out and get a job. Yes. These are the things that I was thinking. You're supposed to have a house. You're supposed to get married. You're supposed to have kids. Yep. And however, checking the boxes, I'm checking the boxes. Yeah. And I wasn't present in my life at that time, the way I wanted to be. And in 2005, like I said, when Olivia was born, it was right around the time that the federal government was tickling the idea of calling pizza a vegetable to keep it on the public school menu because of the level of tomato paste in the pizza. I mean, it's ground from vegetables, I guess. It starts as all vegetables. Right, but we can agree that pizza is <laughs> a 16th century peasant food. Right? It's a 16th century Isn't peasant food. Isn't it kind food. of funny how most food today that's considered elevated food is was like like awful? You yeah. know, like all like, 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 all like the, the you know, charcuteries were just basically the leftovers that yeah. like – the peasants were like found a way to make it not suck. And then now that's like the elevated food. I think this is kind of funny how that came full circle. Agreed. Yeah. So pizza, 16th century food. Yeah. It's meant to be the replacement for a plate. I mean, in Gaelic times, you didn't uh, offer a ring to a woman to ask them to marry you. You carved a spoon and you presented it to the family. And the intricacies of those carvings are commensurate on today's standards around carrot, diamond, or whatever might be important in that, in that equation today. But pizza is a plate. That's it. Implements yeah. were luxury. So we took this 16th century peasant food. It had been in our country for 105 years at that point at 850 calories per slice on average. So you're saying it had been in America uh, for 105 years, since yep. 1900 to so 2005. 2005. Yeah. 105 years in our country, and we have slowly destroyed it to the point of 850 calories per slice. So that, that, looking at my newborn kid and seeing that equation, it just really stuck in me. And I just felt like, again, I'm making pizzas every Friday night. It's a family tradition that has never stopped. And I just kept feeling like, man, there's just, that's not the way pizzas should be. That's not the way this food, this cuisine should be. What can we do differently? It's because at the time I was looking at the real, I was getting into the ingredients of it. I was this, this passion behind what defines this particular type of cuisine and how, and my passion for it really took hold in 2005. So 2005, six, seven, I'm testing out 
how do we grate cheese? What's the difference between bag cheese that has uh, the anti-clumping agents? And I don't want to like single out the Midwest, but mm-hmm. are you talking about the, the, the pizza that was out here? Because I know that the pizza that was out West was a different, like, think of like Chicago deep dish pizza. Is mm-hmm. that what you're talking about? Like, it became this thing where it was how many calories per 850 slice? calories per so slice. So I'm thinking of like a, like a deep dish pizza. No, I'm talking about like Domino's cheese and pepperoni. Oh, okay. I'm talking about pizza, okay. all of it. Okay. And in, in, on, on average, I'm not talking about deep dish pizza. Well, I wasn't sure exactly what you, because you were out west, and I was like, because I know the pizza was out here was probably, and I, don't, I didn't grow up in Minneapolis. You keep you know. saying out west. Where is that here? In Midwest. I'm Midwest. from New Hampshire, bro. Okay, we're in the middle, brother. We're in the middle. Well, yeah, yeah. We're, we're like St. Paul, West, Minneapolis. Right, Saint, here's here's my view on it. St. Paul is beautiful. St. Paul is the last city of the East Coast. And okay. Minneapolis is the first city of the West Coast. Is, oh, wow. That's how I look at it. Wow. And is I it relatively think, beautiful? It is. So we out west. I'm like, where are we fucking going, Ooh, man? Excuse me, sir. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so like, how many? So like, you're just seeing like what was going on with like the chains and the franchises. The yeah, okay. I mean, we didn't have. A I lot. just want to make sure I understood. In 2005, I mean, we had like the regional stuff, like Cassettas and Broder's Cucina Italiana, which still is one of the best pizzas in this state. Yeah, we bastardized food, and like that by, by that time, the early 2000s is when we, I think, the pendulum swung full in one direction of what the frig have we done to food exactly and yeah. so this was in my head in my house making pizzas out of a $50 Craigslist oven that I installed in my first home in Minnesota and you know I was just making 30 pizzas a Friday night trying to test recipes and messing around and again no plan no plan I didn't have this vision like I'm one day going to do this thing mm-hmm. it was just I knew that I was feeling empty in my career and I loved that moment Every weekend, that moment, and it took a long time for me to figure out what it was and why. No plan, but a vision. No, I don't know if I even had a vision, honestly. But you knew you wanted to open a pizza place. Is that what I'm hearing? But you didn't no, have a plan to do I didn't it. know that. So you were just kind of like trying to reconnect with pizza. I was trying to connect with people, and pizza was my vessel. Okay, okay. So, so I was I was in pursuit. Here's the punchline: I am in and continue to be in pursuit of a deeper more meaningful pe- uh, deeper more meaningful connection with the people in my life and in my community i achieve oh, that okay. through hospitality and cuisine and that's what we were talking about before mm-hmm. is that you you felt like you're going through the motions you're checking the boxes yeah but you're unfulfilled and then way you, unfulfilled and you needed to find a way to be whole again and that for you that vehicle was pizza exactly because i believe all of us do the thing we do for that thing, the deeper, more meaningful connection. Mm. And I think that you do your podcast for the last decade, living out of your car, yeah. traveling the country, toiling over this craft of making a connection between the people like myself that toil over our craft. Mm. It's all for the same reason. We want that 100%. deeper deeper connection with people. Yeah, I have theories on that, but I, I'll let you keep going. <laughs> <laughs> or so do you want to hear my theory? I do, of course, want to hear your theory. I mean, Maslow's hierarchy of needs, right? Below, so... And my here, my listeners are like, oh, here he goes again. But like, basically, the third tier up from the bottom, you know, physiological security be above that, and then being seen and being valued. Mm-hmm. Um, I think we, as human beings, have it baked into our DNA to be seen and to be valued and to contribute something to to the tribe. Because if we don't add value to the tribe, the tribe kicks us out. Yeah, and I'm talking now, going back ten thousand beyond years ago. Like we spent hundreds of thousands of years evolving to be of value to others because we literally needed others and right. we needed to fill that uh, a void in the community so that we could be 
like so we could keep our spot so so people could see us and want us. It sounds not very sexy or like soulful, but no. I think there's a lot of like you know evolutionary biology that's tied to this emotion, this feeling that you had to be seen and to like be valued. What are your thoughts on that? I agree with you 100. percent I think that we all pursue that. We yeah. all want to be seen. We all want to be valued. Um, some of us are more comfortable at owning that statement publicly than others. Uh, I don't think it matters if you publicly announce it or not. I think if you feel it and you can figure out a way to fill that void that you should. Mm -hmm. And I think that personally the best path for anyone is to lean into what they're passionate about. And that's what took me a little while to get the courage behind. So I knew I was in pursuit of something more meaningful in my life Mm. than making the owners of the company I work for more wealthy. Mm. Um, And that destroyed me every day I went to work and I just... I knew that I had a lot of firepower. Got it. How did this manifest? Uh, this desire to, um, you know, be seen and to to feel like you're using a vehicle pizza to connect people. Like you said, you started with just the the oven and going and making pizza every weekend. Mm-hmm. But like, when did this like take us through the, the the momentum of that? Sure. So it was a weekly tradition in my house. It's just what happened, um, and it was not like we're going to make two pizzas. It was like lots. Neighbors would come out. Nice. Um, one of my closest friends on the planet, his name's Trey. He introduced me to Jackie. I introduced him to his wife. They had uh, a child who had trisomy 18, which is not compatible with life. And she was born on my birthday and died two weeks later. Mm. I held her when she was born, and I held her the day she died. And it was that moment, that day when she passed, that I decided that I was going to lean into saying yes and not to defaulting to no. I tended to default to no to everything. Hey, you want to grab a beer after work? Ah, you know, I got a thing. Or, hey, would you like to? Ah, you know, I was always no. So that day I decided to default to yes more. And then it was also that day after the funeral that we were at my home and we were all making pizza together. And I had been kicking around the idea of doing the pizza thing in some fashion. Couldn't figure out how. I didn't have stacks of cash to just go out and invest into a piece of real estate. Yeah. I didn't have a business that I could lean into yet. Uh, I knew what I wanted to do. I just didn't know how I was going to make it happen. What was the emotion you felt in that moment when you said, I'm going to commit to yes? What, what emotionally drew you there? Uh, fear. Fear of what? Losing. Missing out. Fear of just letting it all go by. Two weeks that little girl lived, and I was at a desk. The she whole didn't have the choice time. for yes. No, she didn't have the choice for yes. But you did. Uh huh. So it just flipped a switch in me. It was a very uh, emotional and pivotal moment in my life, and um, yeah. So that was that was when it kind of everything really just changed. And it wasn't like it. The next day, I did this huge thing. It was just a, the mindset. The story I was telling myself and what I was capable of doing and how I might get there was starting to change. And it was really starting to build in me that I wasn't happy where I was and I wanted to pursue something that would make me happy. Mm. And I was hungry for it. So two years from this emotion that triggers you to commit to yes to when you open your brick and mortar. No. Two years. The 2012. Oh, wait. 2012 is when we started the business. So this, I forget the year she passed um, and how many, uh, forgive me, I forget the timeline. 2005? Uh, No, 2005 is when the Fed was tickling the idea eventually. And then I was just kind of toiling over recipes and really in the the pizza that I was working on every weekend, what is now called the Red Wagon Pizza, originally donned the name The Monty. 
because one of my very close friends who's also an entrepreneur, his name's John Montague, he really encouraged me. He was the first one that we were standing in my kitchen and he was like, why don't you just do this? Like, <laughs> you need to do this, man. And yeah. I was like, holy shit. Yeah. Maybe. And it was then, it was at uh, Summer Titcom, is the young, young, uh, Two two week old that passed. Okay, it was at at her funeral uh, at the at my house. We were making pizzas, and her mom uh, started a Facebook fan page for me. And I'm going to tell you the name of that fan page, but I'm going to go back in time a bit. My friend John had pulled together uh, some friends to help me get kind of an inspiration on how I might open a pizzeria. There was uh, a, a, there is a chain in town called Devani's. And he was very good friends with one of the three owners. And he invited one of those three owners over to my house for some pizza, a little party, typical Friday night at my house. We were all making pies. And uh, my dad just kind of cruises through the kitchen. And he looks down, he grabs a slice, and he goes, well, you know, you know what the problem is? And we all kind of stop. And this gentleman's here who I'm not intimidated by, but I'm really excited to yeah. see if, like, if he's impressed by my food and what tidbits of like, at the incubation of where I'm at right now, what he might be able to tell me. And my dad just kind of plugs, well, you know, the problem is your pizza's not very unique. And he just walks out of the kitchen. I was like, fuck. <laughs> I think you've changed that. Yes. Yeah. Well, I hope so. But so Megan, the day, uh, uh, this fateful day, starts our, our, what is currently our Facebook fan page. It originally was called the Not So Unique Pizza Company. Oh, I think that the the evolution of becoming a chef is is getting the standards right, mastering yeah. the standards, the expectation of what something should be, the la, 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 um, lack of uniqueness, like French cuisine, right? It's yeah. supposed to be a certain way. Like you're supposed to keep it standard, yeah, right. But then that learning the standards help you with build the foundation of creativity. I agree. Yeah, I think that even if my if he if I was making the exact pizza I was making today in that kitchen, he'd have said the same thing. Right, because he did not want me to quit my full time job. He did not want yeah. me to go bet the farm and do this. So I think you did the right thing in learning the standard, how, how to master the the expectation of pizza, right, or the standard. And yeah. Then, so like, don't yeah, like I think that's the the right path to take. I think it was. Yeah. I mean, it was it was also like that. I don't know what drives a lot of people, but there was this moment of like. I gotta, I gotta prove you wrong. That's right. Curry College, an English major. That was I was proving yeah. my educational history wrong. And then the same thing with my dad with this place. And so, so we have that meeting. Eventually, twenty twelve comes around. By that time, the school where my kids went, they would always do a fundraiser, and every year we would do. Uh, my friend Johnny Witt and I would do this pizza and beer party that everyone would would pay to attend and all the money would go to the school. Still doing the $50 pizza oven in your basement? Yep. Okay. Yep. Yep. On the first floor, not in the basement. Okay. And then, floor. uh, yeah, that'd be kind of bad. And I was just, <laughs> I was so, I was so hungry to like work out of a commercial oven. Like I had used in college and high school. Right. And, um, and then the, the fateful 2012 year rolls around and the school comes to me and says, Hey, instead of throwing a party, why don't you make all the food? for the fundraiser. And I was like, yes. I'm How saying yes to everything. It was a lot. I forget the number. It was 350 <laughs> wow. people. I had rented all the equipment. I had borrowed a mobile oven that someone had built. I built a kitchen and a stairwell of a church in the middle of February, Minnesota. And it was probably the most fun I had had in a real long time. Nice. And that's when I said... We had that's we had already named it, so I knew if I was going to make these pizzas for the school, I had to name this thing. 
not again not knowing where I was going. Yeah, and this, I just needed to get a name for it. Is this before or after the Facebook group? This is after the Facebook group. Okay, so, so the Facebook group not, had come out. Or was Average Pizza? What was the not, not so unique pizza not company? So, that's right. That's right. <laughs> so then uh, I said yes to this school in late January, and then by the middle of February. Uh, we had a logo and had launched. We had established the business at the Secretary of State. Did we locked on the year yet? This is 12. 12. Okay. This 12. Is 12. This is the birth year of Red Wagon. That Got February, it. February 1 of 2012 is when we filed the documents for Red Wagon Pizza. Why pivot to Red Wagon? The, as far as a name? Yeah. Uh, away from not so unique pizza. Well, because one, I think saying that your food's not very good or not unique is probably not the best way to get people to buy your stuff. I'm behind that. It's, it's, it's a unique to your story. It's, yeah, but I mean, you still got to... not very like enticing. Right. It's like pretty good milkshakes. Like nobody wants a fucking milkshake that's pretty good. You want a great <laughs> yeah. one, right? Yeah. So anyway, uh, we, I sat down with my friend Johnny and I had a hard time naming it because... To me, pizza is not my story. It's in my family. It dates back. These, there's a bunch of pictures on the wall behind me. This is my the generations of my family that have been I love that you did that, involved with pizza. It's not my pop-op who started it. It's not my dad and my mom who continued it. And it's not me and it's not my kids. And I don't identify with any regionality with my food. Pizza is very opinionated. East Coast, West right. Coast. Quad City, Deep Dish, Chicago, Thin Crust Tavern, Chicago, Neo Chicago, Neo Detroit, Detroit, all this shit. What is the best pizza? Yeah, the one I know how to make. Yeah, the one that you love. (laughs) It's relative. It's it's exactly love is in the eye of the beholder, man. Exactly. Yeah. So my name I wanted to transcend generations and I make a modern American style pizza. So I wanted a modern American iconic image that transcended generations and to me that was the red wagon got it so thus red wagon pizza was born my brother drew the logo for me for that i think he got like 0.01 percent of the business (laughs) (laughs) so that's probably it's probably a a really expensive logo at this point (laughs) (laughs) i'd like to think it is um so we put the boat in the water that february we did the event it crushed and then uh, about two weeks later, the local farmer's market was just having its inaugural year at the Ace Hardware parking lot. And I went down and I parked the oven that I had borrowed from Sunrise Flour Mill, where I was buying my flour in the beginning from. And uh, we were using heritage wheat, which is very specific to our style of pizza. And um, we tested it out. I walked into the Ace Hardware and I talked to the owner and I said, hey, Mark, I'd really like to be part of your your inaugural farmer's market this year. What do you think? He asked me about a couple of a different, another operator who had some not so nice things to say about us, which was bizarre because we didn't exist yet. And then I said, well, why don't we just, why don't I just make pizza for you? Without Saturday? bringing the other operator into like, like I don't want to talk bad about No, of course. Things, but what did they say about you? I'm curious. Oh, that I was a fly by night operation that, um, that I was old, which is really weird. Cause I was like mid thirties at this point in my life. Um, just not so, not very nice things about me or my business, which again, I didn't even know this guy. It was very bizarre. And so I said, listen, I'm not going to sit here maybe and try to threatened. Yeah, I think maybe, yeah. uh, so I said, "Listen, I'll say I, that. I don't want you to say." That. I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna feel. I'm not gonna field these questions or yeah. try to talk about whether I believe what he said or not believe. I think really, ultimately, I said, "Mark, you guys are gonna have a farmers market that's gonna go into October, and if you have uh, an oven in the parking lot cooking food, it doesn't matter who you have. It'll be a hit. 
yeah. the nuances of style from one man, man to another lady or you know whoever's making the food that nuance is super nerdy to the type of cuisine we're making the general public is not going to care mm-hmm. i think it's more about what's a better fit for your market why don't i come out this saturday and for two hours i'll hand out free slices of pizza and you and the board should come out and try mm. and if you guys like it you can vote and maybe i'll be the one to use this market as an incubating spot for my business. Yeah, I love that. Just eliminating the nose, right? Like, yeah. like what? Like, how can I lower this bar as low as possible for you to say yes to give me a chance? Yeah, and then, just try it. Yeah, just yeah. try my food, and if it's not a fit, I won't do it. See, so yeah, what you did, uh, and we're kind of getting a little bit ahead of ourselves in this, the timeline. Is what I would tell an, anybody to do if they're looking to open a restaurant: is start small scale over time. The cool thing is about today, this wasn't a really an opportunity for you back in 2012. You can start with pop-ups now. You can create mm-hmm. a brand digitally before ever like and, and you have a way to you have you have a way to scale that and develop collect emails, mm-hmm. phone numbers and bring your community with you wherever you go. And I think, you know, I think it starts with pop-ups, creating that digital brand, building a community digitally. And then uh, you know you just that start that goes into a, a cloud ba- kitchen right where you don't need a brick and mortar but you can share like a, a communal space where you just you're just doing delivery and that eventually rolls into uh, a brick and mortar you know hundred percent so it's kind of what you did but you eliminated the 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 pop up well I mean I guess you could call a farmer's market a pop up right I would argue yeah at that time that, that there was, wasn't the language for it there, yeah we didn't really have the language for it. Um, but that was a beautiful moment. That was when it all started. Yeah. And it really hinged on whether or not Mark and the board would say yes. I owned nothing other than the brand at that stage. Yep. Maybe eight dough boxes. Okay. So my investment was small. Because, again, I didn't have a bunch of cash. I had, I had zero dollars. Can you, do you mind talking about money? Like, is, so, yeah, I thought so you said you, we were going to talk about money. Well, yeah, I just... I don't like to assume everybody is willing to get yeah. that, that vulnerable, you know? Um, so you literally had zero dollars. You were starting with yeah. zero money. So I had trouble making, you know. How much did it cost you to get started? Because you had, you had a trailer, right? I did. So that Saturday obviously went well. Uh, not obviously. The story goes is that they said yes at that pop-up at the, the farmer's market, like, test. And at that point, I knew in order to get the boat in the water, I'd have to get licensed with the city to operate at the farmer's market. So I would need some things, right? I needed an oven that was NSF approved or UL listed. I needed the equipment to use that oven and produce food. And I also needed somewhere to do it. I needed a licensed kitchen that I could hang my license in. It's commissary commonly known as. Um, I also needed a place to store my equipment as well. And so all of those questions were just kind of out there. And I was trying to navigate how to answer them. This is um, the detail I'm looking for, so I love this. Just so the number, you asked the number. Yeah. It was about thirty grand. I had to come up with in order to do all of this. And 25 of it was like a refrigerator and an oven. The rest, small wares, things like that. So with inflation, we're looking at about 50000 today. Probably fifty. Yeah, yeah. That's a low bar to get over. I would agree. You know, like there's friends and family. Like if there's a will, there's a way to get the 50000 yep. Even if it's a loan at that point. Most I would people, agree. As long as your credit's not complete garbage and you yep. don't have too much debt, you know? Exactly. Yeah. So um, so you, you create this, this checklist of things you need. The, 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 you're taking away the no's, again, because we're focused on yes. Exactly. Yeah. And that's what, what happens when you say yes? 
Doors open. You just figure it out. You just figure it out. There's nothing stopping you. No? That's literally one of the biggest tricks of becoming unstoppable. Uh-huh. Is just saying how. <laughs> exactly. How? Yes. How? Yeah. And, and not how stop. How walk? Like, yeah. And then run. Yeah. I love that. You don't so, say how and watch. So so thirty thousand dollars gets you to the point where you can do these pop ups every Saturday. I was doing them every Sunday morning, Sunday morning. at nine a.m. to one. Okay. Which is an interesting time to try to sell pizza. By the way, what was the biggest? Why? Why is it interesting? Well, I don't know. When, pretty, you, when you're craving never pizza, mind. do you go at 9 a.m.? As I asked that question, I was like, oh, that is a stupid question. Um, it was totally. one thing if I was like starting a bagel business and <laughs> fucking nail it. Literally, I was like, the, the last like syllable came out of my mouth. I was like, oh, I'm an idiot. That's totally <laughs> obvious. Um, so, so what was the evolution? Like, how did like that build momentum from 2012 to 2014? Like, what were the evolutionary phases? Actually, before you get into that, I kind of want to give the listeners a big, a big picture so they know where we're, we're going. So today, um, you have a brick and mortar. It started as it went from pop up to brick and mortar, one unit yep. location, small, fifty seats in, fifty out. How many square feet in the first? In the first, like the first iteration had about nineteen hundred square feet, of which nine hundred was the dining room. Okay, and then you blew out a wall. We uh, yeah we we uh, the initial location we took walls down to create it that nineteen hundred square feet. Okay, and then in the last uh, twelve months. We took over a neighboring restaurant that sadly closed, and now we have doubled our seating uh, and our uh, patio seating. So yeah. we went from 50 in, 50 out, to 100 in and 100 out. Wow. And the significance of that, I think, again, from the restaurant side, we all know that every chair has a value. You want to add dollars to your P&L, mm-hmm. add a chair. Right. Throughput. Uh, and the cool thing about today, the world we live in, is throughput is literally as much food as you can cook because if, if there's demand, the takeout and delivery, mm-hmm. there's like infinite. And I think pizza, that's one of the things that's great about It's about how much pizza can I cook, literally. Exactly. It becomes your, your bottleneck. Exactly. Yeah. Um, so, but the, beyond that, I also want to point out that you do live events, you do catering. Mm-hmm. So these are other channels of revenue. And I, I really want to dive into the live events because I think that understanding that we are an experience-based we are in the experience economy mm-hmm. and knowing your value and, the, and getting creative about the different types of experiences you can create that are out of the, the standard for restaurants. I think you're doing a really great job at that. So that, thank you. Anything I'm missing as far as the big picture of where you are? No, to I think that you nailed the big picture. That's it's dead on. So this is where we're going. And yeah, if you're listening this is where this, we're going. This is where we're headed. We're going to get to this big picture of how you're running today. But back to also, you've been featured on the food network, yep. your, your, your repeat uh, player with, Diners, dives, and or D- DDD. Yeah, uh, diners, drives, and dives. I've been on that twice. Yeah, uh, guys, grocery games. I've done a number of tournaments. That's so you, where Bobby and I connected. Back so expanding in the brand, really like brand recognition and all these different things that you're able to do with that. So yeah, I think we've been very fortunate with that because that's something you can't really pursue. You can't like make a call. You get there by putting out authentic product and yeah. being you yeah. and being authentic. Yeah. Uh, so I mean, it, and also your, your business grows beyond the brick and mortar. Like you have to think about digital presence. Like yeah. how can my brand grow beyond my community? So when people come to Minneapolis, they have their like their DDD checklist. They're trying to hit totally. all the greatest. Yeah. You know? So okay. So back to the first two years, 2012, 2014, what was that evolution? What were, you, what were the, the micro points of growth? So I think in that, in that first th- 30 to 60 days, so I get approved by the, far, the market board. We then have to fig- I then have to figure out, all right, well, w- what am I doing here? Like, I've worked in restaurants. I've been the dishwasher, the fry cook. I've been on the pizza line. Like, I know how to do those things, but I have not operated. I've managed teams at Woody's, but I didn't operate a restaurant. What was the biggest struggle? 
learning, honestly, just learning it all as fast as I possibly could. So I was very fortunate, though. One of the board chairs of the farmer's market is a gentleman in town. He's like the godfather of cooking. His name's Stephen Brown. He owns a restaurant in town called Tilly, another one called St. Genevieve. Um, he was the board chair at the time. At that time, also, my kids uh, went to school around the corner from his restaurant, and we would go there with a fairly significant regularity. Um, he knew who I was. He had no idea about the pizza side of me. Uh, he knew me as a regular. Yeah. Um, and so when he came up and saw me at the farmer's market, it was like, oh, hey, I didn't know you were this. And so after we got approved, he would find me at his bar regularly, writing the plan, figuring out where, where am I going to buy the refrigeration and where am I going to pick up the oven and which one am I going to pick up and how many nine pans do I need, et cetera. I was going through those kind of planning series as I was waiting to pick up my kids up from school. And uh, he would kind of swing by because he's operating a restaurant. I know all too well now what that's like now. He'd cruise by and he'd be like, what's up today? And I'd ask about refrigeration. I'd be like, I don't understand. Like, this thing's seven grand and this one's 700. And he'd be like, never buy used refrigeration. Then he'd dip away. Dude. And so, wow, man. Out of the gates, you're getting these lessons. And I think the biggest lesson isn't necessarily what he was telling you. It's the, it's the overarching idea of don't be afraid to go to people right. who are restaurant owners who have spent 10, 20 years doing this. Put your, like, don't, I don't know. We're so afraid of approaching other people with our business and saying, this is what I'm... Ask for help. Get mentorship. And the, the reality is, is that people will talk. Yeah. They will. There are a select few out there that kind of feel like, hey, don't look. Don't look at what I'm doing. You'll steal the thing. Most people aren't like that. Most people are... They're pretty open book about mm-hmm. you know, what you need to do. And Stephen was very instrumental in the beginning, early days of Red Wagon. He allowed me to hang my license in his restaurant. He allowed me a small area of prep in his kitchen. And I would literally drag a wagon from his restaurant to the kids' school. And they allowed me to store food in their big walk-in and to pay that off. Basically, what I would do is lead the, the kids' lunch program every day from 11 to 12.45 and help keep the peanut kids that off the peanut table, (laughs) all of this. Uh, It was a lot of fun back then. And uh, my kids went to the school, so I was able to see them. And all the time I had my full-time job. And so every weekend we would do the farmer's market on Sunday. And we were slowly picking up these catering events where we would do graduation parties. We weren't a food truck because in the state of Minnesota, we couldn't like post up on a street. And if you're going to do some kind of, uh, pop up this way and invest in a mobile oven or a mobile barbecue thing or a food truck of any kind, try to understand your, your, your code requirements. A lot of people go out there and they'll spend that money and then they'll try to figure out how that investment will fit into the code for whatever municipality they're in. Right. That's the wrong way to do it. Learn the rules, reverse engineer. Exactly. And the best way to do that is figure out who are you trying to emulate? What kind of license do they have? And all of that information is public knowledge. If that operator is reluctant to share much with you. So you can go to the state and ask. Go to the city, the state, the state and, and say, hey, can I see their permit? Okay. Interesting. Good. And it's good all public advice. knowledge. I mean, yeah. it's a lot of people will be hesitant to share that. I mean, if there's, especially if there's, you know, proprietary information yeah. in their application, That's they, they, they can't show it. But so started, not. started with Sunday mornings, yep. uh, went to catering and the, or sorry, then I went to the, the school. Doing the school uh, pop-ups. I was called a school pop-up. School lunches. No, I wasn't cooking for the school. Oh. I was just being an adult in a room. So it was a Catholic school. Okay. And they didn't have anyone to watch the students during lunch. Okay. They needed volunteers, which they had inconsistent access to. Got it. They were giving me room in their walk-in cooler to store my equipment. Okay. Because Tilia didn't have enough space in their basement. I'd get 17 inches on the counter to use to like grate cheese or slice pepperoni. 
Um, so I needed somewhere to store my stuff that was also a licensed location. And that's Tilia, the restaurant where this gentleman was yep. like, oh, and, and I think that's the other cool thing too. Not only is he giving you knowledge, but he's giving you support with the space. And Absolutely. Like, you can't do it alone. No. Don't, but go approach people and if they say no, move on to the next person and, and develop those relationships. Yeah, I mean, that was 12. It's 24 almost. Yeah. I still can't do it alone. I'm right. st- you know, and, well, if and, you want to get to that next tier, if you want to grow, yeah, you know, or like, sustain, I right. think it, it, it's never. I don't think we ever live in a silo. So anyway, we go back. At, so at the school at the time, I was simply just paying for my storage by helping the kids not get nut allergy issues, okay. and you know, leading the kids through through lunch and or, you know, getting them out to recess. So it was basically paying rent for my storage in the kitchen. So I was doing the pop ups on Sundays, and then on you know from Thursday, Friday, Saturday. I would do catering events, Got graduation it. parties. Still working your full-time job. Still working my full-time job yeah. and not paying myself anything out of Red Wagon whatsoever. Well, I think this at this point, it's also like you're, you're getting paid by the, the, how it's filling your cup. Oh, yeah. You know, and I think that's how we have to look at it is do the thing that you would do if you never got paid for it. Exactly. Uh, and then eventually, the money will come. You hopefully. Know. Yeah, hopefully. It's risky. Yeah. Um, but I think you need that and you need that desire to do the thing because you need the endurance to do the thing. Totally. You, know, you can't you can't rely on the money. If you're doing it for the money, you'll burn out. Yeah. Uh so what was so so when did the conversation of brick and mortar start to pop up? So two years into the mobile stuff, it was at the end of our thirteen summer. So we only operated twenty two weeks out of the year. Okay. The oven can't be dragged around on snowy roads and icy right. roads. I'm it's, sure it's, it's just dangerous when it's like negative 10 degrees out. It's probably hard to get. No going. one wants to cook outside. It's <laughs> yeah. so hard to stretch dough out there when yeah. it's cold. Oh my gosh. It's I the bet. worst. Yeah. So we would put it away for the, the winter. And so in the winter, so the end that was with like the, the fall of 13, I started doing kind of the postmortem on the season. And I realized on average we had, we had turned away six events for every one we booked that wow. year. And so I felt like, gosh, it, feel, it sure feels like we've got something here. So it kind of had an option. What do we do? Do I buy six more ovens and only operate six months out of the year? Or do I find a 50-seat restaurant, second gen, and try to build that out? So it was scale the pop-up by, by, by buying more ovens so you could take on more opportunity. Right. But then you can't be at all those different things. Can't so be at all. And so I got to staff them. Right. Or you... you bring the people to you and do more volume through one location. Right. So basically what I did was armchair quarterback. We basically looked at it and said, all right, so if I did this much this season with one oven times that by six. Now, if I did a brick and mortar with 50 seats at a check average per chair of $30 a night and I'm open 360 nights of the year, What's that number compared to yeah. the six ovens? And you already have your foundation because you had two years of, of right. making relationships. So, and also I have data. Yeah. I've got two years to say, this is who buys my product. Mm-hmm. I know this about my business. So what I did was I spent the month of March writing a business plan. I should also mention recipe development, which you were doing for the, your whole life. Constantly <laughs> ongoing. Constantly ongoing with recipe development. But now you're figuring out how to be not uncommon. or what, what, un- Not so unique. Yeah. I, was, I was trying to be unique. Um, I, I honestly, I think that my pizza was unique even then, but my dad was really reluctant to give me that kind of positive feedback because yeah, yeah. he did not want me to go down this path. Uh, Which was interesting enough because he was the. I did find capital that thirty grand. I found an outside investor to back me. One, a friend of mine was like, "Hey, I'm in." And the second my dad heard that, he's like, "Nope, we're gonna 
we'll fund it within the family. Probably. So my dad became my primary. He's, he's investor doing this right. I, he's like, I couldn't just like, it's going to happen. I might yeah. as well support him. It's that's where the table switched with him. But. I want to go back to data because you said that you also had the data. Um, you're talking like the physical actually seeing who your consumer is and, and having an idea of who your target market is. 100%. But are you also collecting emails at this point? Do you no, have, I'm not. Okay. Do you wish you did? Mm, I'm not a fan of statements like that. Oh, okay. Sorry. No, don't be sorry. <laughs> I'm just, I don't, you know what I mean? I don't, reg- I, I'm I'd not a guy that holds on to If you think it's good, good advice to collect. To collect I think it's good advice to collect emails if you can get them without it being weird. Right. You know, like, if your goal is to just get emails, like that, don't be gro- be authentic about it. If well, you think that your email list is going to help you, well, also, what are you going to tell people? I will say, in the world of marketing, I think direct mail marketing is the most genuine, direct, heavy outside from face to face type of marketing there is. It's your yeah. list of relationships, but you need a way to communicate to your people. And I think your inbox is probably the most, you know, you're not wrong. Like that's the most intimate place beyond. That was not on my list at that stage. Yeah. So, like, if you're listening to this, I'm just adding on to your amazing Totally. Advice. I would say definitely. Collect that information. If you can organically. Trade something for it. Give a free slice for a piece, a piece of pizza for an email. You know, like, don't just ask, but, like, barter. Trade off. Yeah. Like, you have value and ask for contact information. People will give it to you. I think they will, yeah. Yeah. Um, so, you're, you're getting this data as far as understanding who your target market is. Mm-hmm. Which is largely anecdotal at this stage. I mean, the mm-hmm. first two years, I didn't have a lot of exacting data. I knew where I popped up. I knew where my customers were. I knew what they likely read due to their geography, due to their zip code. I understood where I wanted to be. I knew my demo okay. real well. Okay. So then when it came to trying to find a spot, I had to illustrate that. Okay. I had to point it out. I had to say, all right, I'm going to go at this address. So we looked at this spot, 5416 Penn Avenue South, and I figured out with a lot of assistance of friends and peers – I found a way to determine how many homes are within one mile of this property. How much do they make? How much money do they spend every month going out to dinner? And how far do they travel to do it? What do they read? And if these two classes of people that I found in my research exist, what do I call them? Where did you go for this information? Everywhere. The internet, friends. I had friends in marketing that had access to a lot of these databases that could tell you like who reads what in what demo. There's a company out there that specializes in this now. I can't think of the name of the company. Oh, I don't know. To me. Uh, if you are listening to this and you know the company I'm talking about, <laughs> let me know because I'll, cl- I'll include that link in the show notes. But keep going. So for me, there were two things that were really pivotal at that stage. I had liveplan.com, which is where I – not shameless plug. I don't know if they're associated with they that. Were a, uh, an affi- they, they were a path. I think they're still technically an affiliate, honestly. Awesome. Yeah. They're great. I suggest them to everybody. I still pay my, my year, yearly fee for that. What is liveplan.com? Liveplan.com is a platform to really write a business plan for the everyday human being. If you sat down with a pad of paper and said, I'm going to write a business plan, I, I mean, I was fucking lost. Yeah. I didn't know what to do. Mm-hmm. So this thing kind of walked you through like step one, step two, step three. It's like, a guide wire through the obstacles. Exactly. And so I sat down for the whole month of March in 2013 and wrote the plan. Actually, it was 14. I'm sorry. It was 14 I wrote the plan. Yeah. And I mean, where, like, what what did liveplan.com do for you that you would have never done otherwise? It gave me the roadmap to read. Um, I didn't want to do like a business plans for dummies. You know, I, I wanted to have a, a format and a platform that I could create my plan. Yeah. Right. I think owner.com or restaurant owner.com for a while had a special 
plan. Oh, I've not been that to that site. Restaurantowner.com. Yeah, they have templates like like business plan templates that are okay. similar, but it's not service as a software like Live Plan is, where it's like a web browser that brings you along. Correct me if I'm wrong. It's in like a web browser. It that, is in the web. Yeah, like yep. step by step. It's cloud based. It's yeah. a step by step. So it says who are you? Yeah. Why are you different? Right. You can pull in different uh, parts of the plan itself if you yeah. want to talk about or dive deeper in certain things. There's like uh, it's pretty user friendly. Um, I'd never written a business plan before in my life, and I sat down for 30 days and drafted a 67 page document that told you that within one and a half mi- within one mile of Red Wagon Pizza. There are 8,275 households. They make X amount of dollars a year, and they spend $1.5 million a month going out to dinner, and they don't travel more than a mile to do it. So there was a, a page on liveplan.com that asked you, what's your demographic? Well, there was a page that said, <laughs> who's your guest? Who's yeah. your customer? Yeah. What, who are you? What makes you different? So is that what sparked this, this research to find out more about your demographic? Or was that just intuitive? I think it was definitely a question within yeah. Live Plan and that whole month long process Got of it. deep diving and saying, okay, well, I've talked about what I think, but how do I support that with real information? Mm. Got it. And Live Plan didn't give me the, the website to target the data I just gave you, but it, it asked me the question that I knew I needed an answer for. Got it. Got it. So it holds you accountable to the things you need to do. I feel like it did. It yeah. did for me. And yeah. I've gone back. Uh, after COVID, I, I wrote another plan on LivePlan.com, uh, and I've gone back to it multiple times. So you have your, your location figured out based off the demographic, based mm-hmm. off all the information you've garnered over the past two years. Were there any challenges with opening your first restaurant as far as like, like things you know now that you wish you knew going into it? Or advice, things you did right that you think other people should do? It's going to cost you way more than you think it's going to cost you. Mm. Um, cash you, is king. What did you think it was going to cost? So I went to the SBA, and... I asked for three hundred and fifty grand. I paid ninety thousand dollars for the leasehold and assets of a previously owned restaurant within my space. What kind of restaurant was it? It's more of like a quasi fine dining. It was called in season farm to table, uh, real finicky tweezery kind of food. They had one hood, no walk in cooler, a bunch of used refrigeration, which we know is a no no. Yeah, um, a bunch of tables and chairs that I didn't really need or want. It was a hood. How much of it was turnkey as far as like, because you still needed an oven. So I could have at that stage just opened it. I wouldn't have had an oven in here. But for what I visioned and what I wanted, it, none of it was turnkey. Um, well, that's what I was curious. I mean, just because a restaurant exists doesn't necessarily mean it's turnkey because you, you, what you want to do might not be supported in the kitchen. 100%. You only get one chance to open your restaurant. Right. Right. Uh, unless you're like a super chef that can like go walk into a kitchen and then reverse engineer a menu based off of the resources you have. But that wasn't me. Right. You know, I was there to do pizza. I had my cuisine locked. I wasn't there to open a restaurant. That was not my goal. Few people it, can take that approach. I would agree. Yeah. I would agree. And there's some greats out there that definitely can. Kevin Casey could probably pull it off. Fuck yeah. He's a fucking <laughs> ninja. Sure. Um, I'm not one of those people. Yeah. Um, so I, I, uh, which I just bootstrapped the whole thing from start to finish. So you said you had your trailer, you had a pizza oven. Yep. It was a, a, a wood burning oven. Yep. Um, did you get another oven when you opened the brick and mortar mm-hmm. or were you using that oven? We were not using that oven. Okay. That, uh, that oven couldn't be used because from a health code perspective, we couldn't cook food outside then bring it indoors. Um, Isn't that kind of crazy that we started with cooking food outside and now yeah. we're legally allowed not to do it? Like, yeah. <laughs> 
It just doesn't make sense to me. Oh, we're a long it's way worse from eating around the campfire than it is inside. Like it True. just doesn't make any sense. But anyway, um, I'm sure there's more to it that I don't understand. So I love that you now have two ovens. So like you, you the option was go to one brick and mortar with one oven, but technically you still have the opportunity to do the catering. Right, so which we shelved the first year we opened because we were just too busy. Right. But now it continues to be a huge, huge part of our business. Right. Like we operate every summer and it crushes. And it, I mean, our, our month of June for us is bananas. Mm. It helps us store nuts for January, February, March. Which is another huge lesson. Yeah. Like you, you got to, you know, put those nuts away. And good understanding time. what is your market. So right now we opened, we had a 50 seat restaurant, 50 in, 50 out. Right, fifty seats on the patio, fifty right. seats in the dining room. That meant so in the summer months, I had mobile catering, which I could have generate revenue on. I had a patio and an inside dining room. Yeah. So come January, I lose the mobile and I lose the patio. I go down by a third. I cut my revenue by Does a third. Does delivery go up? I don't have delivery because oh. I don't partner with third parties. Interesting. Wow. So. And it doesn't really. So COVID taught us a lot about delivery. We can get there when you're ready. Yeah. But, yeah. Um, we so, don't we don't do delivery here. So we, we, we started on this path by saying you're gonna need more money than you think. Um, so yeah. you're you're going over the expenses you had. Um, any other ideas on like the things that you just that, that blindsided you? You're talking about the the three hundred fifty thousand ninety thousand was the turnkey, uh, the, the 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 down on the lease. I think is what it you was said. a lease. I, I well, it wasn't even a lease at that stage. It was it was the space and the assets within the space. Got it. And then I had to negotiate a lease with the landlord, and they built this building in the late forties, and they've never signed a lease for more than a month. Wow. And here I am. I have this business plan. I have this trajectory. I need at least seven years before my return on investment. And so I, I printed a bunch of documents, my plans. I invited them into the space. I presented a strategy and an agenda. And they not only signed the lease for 10 years with another 10-year renewal, they also put in money to the building for the first time ever. And they wow. put in brand new HVAC. Was that a request? It was. Where did you know that that was even an option for you? Which part? Being able to ask the the property owner to put money their own money into by that time, I had negotiated thousands of leases in my career yeah. in real estate. What's the name for that? There's a spe- the term for um, can't remember. There's a specific term that is that is used to, des- to describe what you just said, where the the property owner tenant improvements tenant improvements. Thank you. Bro. Yeah. I think that's the yeah. It's, so they didn't they didn't pay for anything other than like the HVAC and things that. Um, that would go to the common spaces. Like they paid for the moving a mop sink and bathrooms and things like but that. But the HVAC is a huge expense. It is. And I was very fortunate because I actually put the maintenance and ongoing responsibility for the maintenance of that HVAC in my lease. And you're that's not, not pulling not the me. hood out when you leave if you go to a different location. No, but that's why I was psyched that I had the hood. The hood was here. a huge lesson. That's an asset here. that the property owner owns. Correct. And it adds value to the building, mm-hmm. which they can leverage if this, this doesn't work out for you or if you choose yeah. to scale out of the location. 100%. If you're trying to open your own spot and the building owner says, you got to buy the hood and install it i mean i would at least try to get some sort of you know cash somehow whether right. it's deferred rent because the assets theirs the second you leave you can't take that with were you. there other opportunities for tenant improvements i think um anything that if you imagine flip the building upside down whatever falls is stuff you get to take everything else is money you should be asking for your landlord i would say that like what's underneath the, the ground too yeah, plumbing things like that. Yep. That those are huge expenses. Plumbing, electrical, HVAC. Yeah, all the systems that enhance the building itself. Especially if the building was built in 1940. Yeah, 
Tell know, me about it. Like the, the the draw, the demand that these newer modern appliances and all that stuff have. Like sometimes, like that all that shouldn't come out of your pocket. One hundred percent. The space that we're currently in right now, Eric, was a Chinese restaurant that hadn't been touched since like I don't know, nineteen fifty two. That's wild. And they they had a very rudimentary electrical system with screw in fuses. Yeah. So what was the first year like? Scary. Within the first three months, I had set aside. Um, I drained most of my retirement accounts. How much do you have put aside? Um, at that point, I think I probably had retirement accounts on upwards of about 80, 90 grand. Wow, that's scary. I had drained most of that. I had held off to about 25 grand just out of fear. Mm. And within the first three months, I drained the remaining to make sure I made payroll. Wow. Because you can't not pay your staff. You need people. I also didn't pay myself for the first five years of Red Wagon. Oh, so 2012. Where was the money coming from? How for did you, for like, me, I would pull draw on occasionally. Um, I, I almost lost my house three times at foreclosure. I think it's also important to point out you had a partner with a full-time job. I did for the first six months. Yeah. And then she bailed and came in with me. Oh, wow. So Jackie's my CFO, and she and I have run this business shoulder to shoulder. She dropped nerdhood, huh? What's that? She dropped the nerd hood, huh? She did. She, she's, still, she's still super nerdy <laughs> in the best way possible. Hey, uh, nerds have their place. I, oh. I mean that with the most respect. And I, I don't think that she would be happy with being called a nerd, but oh, she's wicked sorry. smart. And No, she mean... I mean it with respect. I, I think we are, like, entrepreneurs, restaurateurs need to do everything they can to surround themselves with the nerds. I would agree. Yeah. I would agree. But she's, she's a brilliant woman and... and uh, and I've been fortunate. So the first year, what I learned really quickly is as, as anyone starts a business, as you know all too well, 10 years in yourself, Eric, on this, that you're doing all the things, right? You do all the things. Not only are you buying the food, you're writing the recipes, standard operating procedures, uh, you're scheduling everybody, you're printing the menus, you're working service, you're negotiating your contracts with your garbage and recycling and compost contracts, you're ensuring that the lot's been cleared of snow. You're doing all of the things. What has your your evolution been? Going back, looking at 2014 as a brick-and-mortar restaurateur, uh, the mm-hmm. physical space. We talked about blowing out the wall. Uh, that when did, This happened a year ago. So, so this we was, just expanded into the space So 11 this years. Year. 10 yep. years of putting the energy into doing the thing to create the opportunity to, to let the cash flow and the people determine the growth. Yeah. Right? Um, but like reflecting over like the evolution as you as an operator, how you've improved, what were those biggest milestones for you? I think when I started to hand things off. Mm, when did that happen? The first tier was, um, I want to say, I want to say 15 probably. Identify the tiers 16? while you're thinking about that because I want to. So the first back. tier, like, I think handing things off is that that's a, that's a leap of faith moment. Um, we as people feel like we need, if unless I do it, it won't be done correctly. That notion. Right. Right. Um, letting that go to a certain extent and starting to hand things off to people saying, hey, I need help with this. Can you, I'm going to grab you, this individual, and you're going to help me deal with tip outs and scheduling. And you're now going to be a manager of sorts. When I started, I had staff in the front, in the back, and me. Why didn't you do that sooner? What was holding you back? Fear. Fear of what? Control. Did if I have, if I didn't do it, it wouldn't be done. How correctly. was it being done? Just sheer terror. Just not. Can't. I can't fail. I have to be here every day to make sure that things get. Was done. there a process that was your? You're doing the schedule. You're doing the the, the, the tipping out. Like, was there a step by step process to do these things, or was it all just in you? 
it was all in me. I didn't have like an SOP for that. I had it for the food and buying. So eventually I handed off things in the kitchen to have help with that. So I had, I had a chef de cuisine that came in under me as the executive chef of Red Wagon. And that CDC helped me open and buy and build out the order guides. Is this still tier one or is this now tier two? This is tier one. Tier one. And then eventually in tier two, I added someone to help me in the front. And that was Jackie. And then eventually now my chief operating officer, Carrie. And Carrie, Jackie, and I run the business today. And that first tier of really empowering Jackie and Carrie to help drive the business was was a pretty pivotal moment. If tier two, or sorry, if tier one was 2015, when was two, tier two? No, sorry. T- tier one was the opening. Tier two was 2015. Yeah, yeah. And when, when did tier two? Oh, wait. Two, so you said you started delegating things in 2015, right? That was tier one, that, tier two. That was tier two. Okay. So tier one's opening, right? Okay, it was all it, me. That was the first stage of opening. Um, has there been a tier three? I think so. Yeah. What What was that? Um, I think COVID kind of mucks up the waters a little bit there. Um, I think tier three. It's hard to describe tier three because it it started with COVID, and it feels like a lot of the that dirty word of pivot hasn't gone away much. You know, it's just kind of this bob and weave. When COVID hit, we had years of data. We knew who we were. We knew how to connect with our consumer. I want to unpackage this, but I want to make sure I get all the points of evolution out now, okay. and then we're going to go back. Hit me. Where we're gonna, so tier, tier one opening, tier two delegation, re- re- replacing yourself with other people and handing mm-hmm. off responsibility. Tier three, pivoting, meaning changing your business I model. would say if we're going to – I don't understand the tiers, I guess, but big change moments, is yeah. that what we're talking about? Yeah, yeah. Points so, of evolution. All right. Tier one open. Tier two is handing off delegating. Tier three, I would argue, was TV. TV? TV, television. Oh, TV. Okay. Yep. So that was when you got featured. What, what yep. year was that? That was in 16. Okay. And then that was a wild animal for a couple years. Okay. And I, we can get into that. And then tier four, I would say, is COVID. Pivot. Yep. And I'd say right now where we are today is tier five. Okay. Awesome. That's exactly what I needed. So, um, Going, we covered, I think, opening, right? Uh, you being here every day, figuring things out. That hasn't changed. That hasn't changed. I love that you're <laughs> still here. I always say that a restaurant owner, you shouldn't open a restaurant unless, you shouldn't have to be at your restaurant every day. No, I want to be here. But if, if you should, I feel like you should you should create the situation where you can get away to go chase a TV opportunity and right. know that the, the house isn't going to crumble when you step out of it. Um, but you, you <laughs> but you, I don't know if that's true. I don't know. <laughs> that's what keeps you awake at night when you're right, not here. Right. Right. <laughs> but but you, that's in me though. My team knows how to do the things. Right. It's my own fear and insecurities want, you, that come out. Yeah. You want the business to survive without you, mm-hmm. you but you should want to be in your business. I think a hundred percent. And that's, that's what I believe. But I realize. There's different business models. I get that too. Anyway, um, what was the, tough, the toughest part about letting go and delegating? And like, what advice do you have? You know, what was your struggle? And how, how hindsight again being 2020, like, what would you have done differently, if anything? Understanding this key point, I opened this business because I was in pursuit of a deeper, more meaningful connection with the people in my life. That was my driving mm, force. That's why. why I wanted to be here. 
It's what was important to me. Toiling over that craft every day to make sure that the dough was right, to make sure the product was right. I'm finicky on how we grate cheese because I don't like anticoagulants, anti-clumping like, uh, agents in there. I want to make sure that the, the things are being done the way I want them to be done. What I think I, the thing, the hardest part of tier two when I started to let go was trusting that others would get that too. Um, how did you overcome that? Understanding how I'm wired more, understanding that it wasn't a defining moment of who I was as a person, that if it wasn't done right, it didn't mean that I failed. Um, what does Danny Meyer say? Constant gentle pressure. Yeah. And knowing and understanding that it's never going to be exactly the way you want it to be. Exactly. But just, and just accepting that and just constantly bringing it back to that center line. Exactly. You know, two steps forward, one step back. Yeah. I mean, it's every day. So I think at that stage, it was an epiphany that I came into this for that deeper connection. And I thought I was achieving it through food and through experience Tier two is when I realized I wasn't going to get there without the people, mm. the right people in the right seats that drank the same Kool-Aid. Mm. What was the challenge with that? Understanding how to make the Kool-Aid. What is the Kool-Aid? Who we are, our culture. I mean, mm. culture is just a fancy word for saying this is how we do shit. Yes. But how do we explain that? That's a little EOS drop, by the way. Yes. Yeah, it is. <laughs> uh, it's literally what is happening literally every day. Yeah. Reality is culture. Yeah. And you know it's funny because when you when you're the when you're the boss and you know, the the colors and the people you see and how they interact with you are going to be different than how they act when you're not around. Mm. And that was a surprising moment. I'm a real trusting person, and so figuring out that oh wow, like I get this kind of person when I'm here, but when I leave the room, apparently something else comes out. So really understanding, all right, well, who are we? Like I know this is our culture and this is how we do shit. But how do we give it a name? And yes. so actually we did traction. My whole operation, Carrie and Jackie. VTO? Jack, you know, what's that? Your VTO? Vision track? Isn't that the, the analogy that you Yeah, I guess we didn't do it enough to know that off oh, the cuff. But yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I did it enough. Your vision something. I can't remember the exact We analogy. did a vision statement. Yeah. Um, we kind of let it go the moment we figured out our core values. Once I could figure out and name who are we and why are we here, that helped me figure out what people did we need to pull in to our little party? Yeah, I just looked it up. and It's, it's VTO. I was right. Uh, vision Traction Organizer is what it stands for. Exactly. Yeah. So it's exactly what you're talking about is what is your vision? What are your core values? What mm-hmm. is our mission? It's all those things that are pretty much common knowledge when it comes to building a culture. Right. And it's just you just need to find words to it. Right. And so, just, that's what we did. Up to 2015, I like to say behind every great restaurant is a great person. And you were the culture because you set the standards. You you walked the walk and people walked in your path behind yeah. you. But when you leave, where do we step? What do we do? Who are we? If I'm not there to be the, the man behind the restaurant or the woman behind the restaurant, how do I put my values, my, my energy, my culture into that restaurant in a, in a written form so other people have instructions on or an idea or a vision a picture of what the job done right looks like yeah and what the expectation is yeah i think that one of the downsides was me being here all the time um and finding my own voice and trying to explain what my expectations are um the restaurant we are today compared to the restaurant we were when we first opened in that farmer's market We've had bad days. We've had good days. And there's been people with me here from the start that have seen the worst sides of me and the best sides of me. And yeah. I'm not proud of every decision I've made. But we are in a people business. You're human. 
<laughs> and we are. I like to think that that's true. Yeah. Um, and I've made mistakes, um, and I've tried to learn from those mistakes. And I think understanding that 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 Danny Meyer comment from setting the table, I think, is so vital to anyone in this profession. Is just constant gentle pressure. And sometimes when you're out of gas and your tank is low, that gentle pressure turns to anger, which is, I think, a very human uh, right. part of us. It's, Emotions. You mean we're, we're emotional creatures? It, it, it turns out we are. <laughs> and and I think that anger specifically is a perceived injustice. That's what it is. Is it's a it's a normal reaction to a perceived injustice. And when you're putting everything on the line, and you know that if this thing fails, that you're fucked. Mm-hmm. Like you're fucked for a while. Generation life is savings fucked. not taking a everything's pair. gone. Yeah. Um, so understanding the best advice I'd have. I have a lot of advice. Um. No one's ever going to understand or give a fuck how much is on the line for you. They're certainly not going to for 12 to 26 bucks an hour. That's not why they're here. It's not their fucking problem. Mm-hmm. And it's not their job to care. Um, and there's beauty in that, right? So finding the team and finding the kind of people that you want with you to get there and knowing that you cannot get there alone you so, cannot. You didn't get to the table alone, right. and you can't stay, keep your seat at that fucking table unless you have help. Yes, yeah. And so back to 2015, it sounds like what you were doing is it was you were replacing yourself, or you were distilling who you are and what this business was, your why, your vision, your values onto paper, so it could go on without you if if you wanted to go to, like take other opportunities. That's yeah, the same. I'd say that was the goal was to start building those systems, and that's why in 15 it. It was great because 15 hit, and I knew we needed to do those things. And like, was was traction your like your go to source? Not at all. Okay, traction. We basically we had someone that was on our team that uh, I needed to navigate. I couldn't figure out what was wrong. Like something just didn't feel right. It didn't sit right. And I wanted to understand who are we and who do we employ? Who do we attract and why? And if we have core values, what are they? And how do the people that work here stack up against those core values? Right. Because you were saying we can't do it alone. Can't do it alone. So how, and, and you need good people. Right. What filter do you put those people through? Those core values. Exactly. I hire, fire, and elevate to those core values. So it's a standard for you and the people you're trying to attract onto yourself. Exactly. Mm-hmm. And it's real core values. Like the first one is give a shit. Play well with others. Humble confidence. I love that. Yeah, you know, we've got to in there. there what are, yeah, what are your quote? Give a shit. Well, give a shit's pretty normal. I mean, yeah. you get, get what that means. Yeah. Um, play well with others is obviously a key one. I think one of the big ones for us was humble confidence. Like, just don't be that guy. Like, if you're confident in what you do, then great. But there's a big line between confidence and cocky. So I'm looking for humble confidence, not cocky arrogance. So that was a big, I big hear that. one. For us. I almost hear like, like, conf, like humble confidence is be willing. If you see somebody else struggling with something, instead of telling them they're an idiot, like what's that look like? Right. What does it look like? How do you help them train through it? Yeah. And that's the part that I've always not been, I've not always been the greatest at as a leader. So is that three core values? There's like five. And quite frankly, I think I'm forgetting a few of them because we don't do it a lot. I mean, we do it at review periods and, um, I cut, those are the those top three that we really lean on. I, I cut you off and you, I think you were about to get into some, some gold. You, you said humble confidence. Yeah, humble confidence is a huge one for us. That is like, be willing to fail. We have this notion that it's not okay to fail. That failure means I'm a bad person. 
And I don't think that's what life's about. Mm. I think life's about pushing the envelope a little bit. What what are you made of? What gets you there? If it's easy, you're not working hard. Exactly, <laughs> exactly. So I love. I, I'm I'm trying to be better, and I think that the whole point of having core values one. You're not creating core values for other people. They're your core values mm-hmm. to keep you honest. Exactly. So you live the way that you expect your team to live. 100%. Because they're only going to follow in your path. So you need those values for you to keep you honest. Right. And two, it's, it's um, oh man, I had it and I lost it. But it, most importantly, it's to keep you honest, right? Um, I, I like to share my core values. You, they're there so you can repeat them. I think that's the mm-hmm. other thing too. It's not enough to write them At down. At least three of them. Yeah, <laughs> but like I, but like you're supporting my core values, right? Mine's, my first one's integrity. Give a shit, right? Mm-hmm. Mine's, we, we, we have integrity. Second one is we are students. We're constantly learning. We're constantly like in my mind. I think that was, what was your second one? You said it. Play well with others. I feel like being a student means like, you know, like we're here to learn. We're here yeah. to like, I don't know if it, maybe that's a little bit of a stretch. Third one for me is we're teachers. And I think in your mind, like, like you need to be humble and recognize that you need to teach people. You need to bring them up to your level. Yeah. And then beyond that is we communicate, um, we collaborate, we show up, we have fun. Those yeah. are my core values. Um, anyway, I just like sharing them because that's, what's the point of having them? Exactly. Um, so anything else in that, that 50, 2015 tier? I think that's, that's where kind of the, the wheels flew off the truck in many ways. Like we were building these systems so I could easily walk away or feel like the business could operate without me. And then it felt as though every quarter the business was changing. Um, we, you know, I think anyone who does what we do, I'm an unknown, a no-name chef in a no-name intersection in southwest Minneapolis. When we opened, I unlocked the door and I turned the lights on and I hoped that people would come in. I've toiled over a craft, the style of my cuisine, the steps of service that I felt was important in an elevated version of pizza experience. As you look around this restaurant, does it seem like a mom and pop pizza joint? I like to think it's fine dining pizza and that's what we're going for here. So how do I get people to come in the door and give us that moment, share with us that 45 minutes to an hour where we can give them an escape, where we can take them out of their day and meet them where they are because people are here not for the hot food and the cold drink alone. They want that experience. Yeah. I think that's a great segue. Um, and I think now's a great time to thank our sponsors. So we'll be right back. Most business problems are people problems, people not understanding each other. And the predictive index helps to increase that understanding between others. Hi, I'm Ed Doherty. I am the founder of One Degree Coaching here in Philadelphia. Predictive Index is a talent optimization platform. Been around for over 55 years. It helps leaders to build happier, high-performing teams. My name is Eric Cacciatore. I'm the founder and host of Restaurant Unstoppable Podcast. As somebody who's gone through the PI program, process, I can tell you that knowing who you are, knowing who your team is can help you be far more intentional than you've ever been with your business. If you want to learn more about PI and get to work with Ed, head to restaurantunstoppable.com slash try PI. If you click the link, sign up for PI, you can create a provisional account. I will set up an opportunity to talk to you directly and read your results and give you a little tour of the platform. See if it works for you. Restaurantunstoppable.com slash try PI. Recently on the show, you've been hearing it come up often. 
Restaurant Systems Pro. If you've become interested, I highly recommend you sign up for the Restaurant System Pro 60-day pilot program. This is something that's never been done before. This 60-day event is at no cost to you, but it's not for everyone. Fred Langley, CEO of Restaurant Systems Pro, will be leading a group of restaurateurs through the Restaurant Systems Pro software and setting up the system for your restaurant. Fred will be leading the training, supporting you, and holding you accountable. Typically, this costs $10,000 a month to have Fred in your restaurant, but during this no-cost-to-you 60-day training, he will be teaching you every process he does during the group coaching sessions, and nothing will be held back. During the 60 days, Fred will walk you through the Restaurant Systems Pro process and help you crush the following goals recipe costing cards, guidance in your books for accounting, cash control, sales forecasting with accuracy, checklist, budgeting for the entire year, scheduling for profit, more butts in seats, and that's not it. Often, the team at Restaurant Systems Pro helps restaurateurs out pro bono because their hearts go out to these folks. I mean, it's hard out there, but because of that, a lot of the time these restaurateurs don't follow through because they have no skin in the game. For that reason, there is an application process. Only those serious about making change in their operation will be accepted into this program. Are you interested? Then go to restaurantunstoppable.com slash RSP. P. That's RSP for Restaurant Systems Pro. RestaurantUnstoppable.com slash RSP. We're back. And what I would love to get into, so the last thing you mentioned before we, we broke for sponsors was uh, you you, under, you said that we're in the – people want to escape. Mm-hmm. And that you understood that people are coming here for an escape. And I don't think that restaurant owners fully understand that that is an experience that should be something that – we charge a premium on that we're, we traditionally have not been doing and we're guilty of that. And I think we need to be better about knowing our value because we are creating an experience for people. They're escaping. They're going to a different place when they come into your restaurant. And I'll say last night I came in here and I escaped. It was oh, amazing. Great. I had a great time. I, I was surrounded by friendly people. I felt like I was a part of this community and I'm from East Bumfuck, New Hampshire. You know, like I escaped to a community that just it felt very comfortable. You know, I love that, and I'm and I'm. I hope I'm not putting you on the spot right now, but I also pay ninety one dollars. Yeah, and I'm so happy that you charged me. I got a salad, I got chips, and I got what was, and wings and three glasses of wine. I'm a little bit of a lush. What can I say? So three glasses of wine, chips, a salad, a salad, the Which burrata salad? salad. Okay, all right. What'd you think of that? It was delicious. Fucking hell. I'm not complaining for the record. Okay, I don't think you are. I'm encouraging more people to charge. I feel like when you you go on an escape and you have that experience, there's Mm -hmm. so much value in that. And I feel like you recognize your value and you're willing to charge for what you're worth. I think, and also, we're very much market. I mean, there's a lot of restaurants in this neighborhood. And none of them are empty on Friday night. And at the same time, you... You had a b- deep fried burrata salad filled cheap. with pesto. <laughs> Get that. With a fermented Fresno there, pepper, red pepper, but, vinaigrette. Like that fucker had to have blown your mind. It was so good, dude. But I think you also recognize that you, you don't use cheap ingredients and you're from no. scratch. So that's labor and quality right yeah. there. Um, I'm, not, I'm saying like. Did I, you not get a pizza? I had a feeling I was going to eat pizza today. Okay. And I, and I, I can only eat so much pizza. So pizza, <laughs> wings. No, I didn't have pizza. 
No, sorry. Salad, salad wings, wings, chips. Chips. What wine? Uh, what a, I just tell the, the server to always give me whatever. I think the Pinot, Pinot Noir, um, a white and a red. I just, I just told her. I was like, what's okay. good? I, I, I've, I'm really proud of our wine list. It was, yeah. But I think the point is, I think, I don't think you're overcharging. You know okay. what I'm saying? I think that. Was that with tip 91 or no, pre-tip? I, I spent 135. All right. Take yeah. care of Jenny. Nice yeah. work. Well, once you say you have a restaurant podcast, you can't. You can't be a dick. <laughs> <laughs> I have a restaurant podcast. Here's seven and a half percent tip. <laughs> yeah. Please listen. <laughs> yeah. So anyway, I guess where I'm going with that is like, um, I think we we can be better. And I'm, I'm again, I'm about to interview Joe Pine, the author of The Experience Economy. So this is hitting hard with me right now. Yeah. But I wanted to tie this together with 2016 TV. So again, bringing the experience beyond the four walls of your restaurant. Yeah. And then knowing the experience that you're creating within the four walls of your restaurant and not being afraid to the value you bring and to get the money you you deserve. Do you want to get into that? Sure. I'd love to. So 2015, 16 hits. Again, knowing that we open the doors, unlock it, turn the lights on and hope that someone has the courage to pull the door and we get them for 45 minutes to an hour, as I mentioned. One of the cool things that happened when we got the phone call to be part of the diners, drivers and dives kind of journey. Um, one, it wasn't a guarantee. It was that we were kind of in the running. Uh, it was an interesting story there. The young lady who answered the phone actually just yesterday celebrated nine years with us. Um, and when Emily answered the phone, the person on the line said, hi, this is Megan from the food network can I speak with Peter? And Emily, of course, quickly locates me and gets me on the phone. And for some reason, this Megan from the Food Network kept calling the main number of the restaurant. So by about the eighth call, I now have like a three-inch document from the Food Network that says things in words like uh, they own the rights in every known and unknown language in the universe – so again, let's settle into that statement. If they happen to, if we happen to colonize Mars, create a new language, they'll still own it. And Megan proceeds to tell me, "Please don't let any of your staff know that you're talking to us." And I just said, "I can't get that rabbit back in the hat. I'm sorry. Like you called a very small restaurant with you know, 15 employees." And said you're with the Food Network. Like, it's quite a buzz yeah. in this building right I now. Didn't, I didn't answer the phone. Yeah, I can't unfuck <laughs> that. Sorry, <laughs> Megan. <laughs> so, anyway, so we get in this long conversation with the Food Network and Diners, Drive-Ins, and Dives. And eventually, they, they book a time. It was Mother's Day. They came out and filmed in 16. And then it proceeded to air in September of 16. And, you know, when... Triple D first came out, there was this notion that like the next day there's a line out the door. And I'm sure that's maybe the case in some parts of the country. There's been a lot of diners, drive-ins and dives uh, locations here in the Twin Cities because the production team, the show itself is from here. Um, so it's a little bit of a hotbed of spots. Yeah. So it's a little bit of a different... I would also say 2016 was later in the life of ddd right? it was yeah it was about 10 years old at that stage I think earlier on it had it, when you were on like when it first came with the mm-hmm. first few seasons it was like dropping a hammer because the internet oh, yeah. wasn't what it was today too so i feel like the other thing is the internet has brought you know there's more competition for attention today the totally. show is still popular but back when cable was still like where the majority of people were getting their entertainment mm-hmm. it when the, when that came out like the floods 
would come to the masses. Yeah, and it, it definitely did that. Yeah. Uh, it just didn't do it like the next oh, day. Okay. Um, we didn't have a line out the door the next day. Uh, so when it aired, we threw uh, my friend who was the director of photography on the show, Anthony Rodriguez. He suggested he also lives in the neighborhood. He said, you should throw a party. And I said, great. I have a parking lot. Great idea. Put a big circus tent up. We had a 15-foot screen. We did an airing party. It was a blast. We had so much fun. And the next day, it was kind of just bananas, but slowly. Every time the show would re-air, it was another level up, another step. And it was kind of this new normal. We were constantly trying to find what the new normal would look like. Um, And we just leaned into the experience. We didn't just have the experience and set it down. We leaned into it. So when Guy would call and say, hey, we're doing a grocery games tournament with Triple D chefs. You want to come out to that? I'd say, heck yeah, let's do that. It was still on that yes train. Um, and it was exciting, and it continues to be exciting. We've continued to do stuff with Guy and the Food Network, and it's, we're lucky to be part of that community and that fraternity of other chefs. Uh, I've met some of my closest friends, Bobby, Bobby. Mar- Bobby Marcotte. The reason you're here, I mean, you're here for so many reasons, but no. he connected me to you. 100%. And yeah. Bo- Bobby is he's a man. She's one of the greatest people on the planet. Uh, there's very few people that... I'm closer with than Bobby. I'm lucky to have him in my corner. Just to, I know, would agree. To be we on all his are. radar, he's, just a, he's a great dude for yeah, sure. Yeah, he makes the world a lot better, that's yeah, for sure. Yeah. The glory of the Triple D moment, though, was that no longer were was I in a position where if I get someone to pull the door, I introduce myself and present my language of hospitality. Uh, I don't have to necessarily introduce myself to the unknown coming in. The beauty of what Guy does is he starts that conversation with our consumer before they pull the door. And our job is to now meet them there and exceed those expectations. And that's been a, just a blast I to bet. do through the years. So you said it, it took you five years to, to be able to pay yourself. Oh, yeah, yeah. Was, it, was, <laughs> it this, was this the, the tipping point where um, this drew the, 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 the volume, the revenue to your business where you could start to pay Take a page. What? What? Uh, Fifteen was the tipping point. Fifteen to sixteen was the tipping point. Um, I think a big part of it was just the trouble of just staying ahead and like going into foreclosure, or getting the foreclosure notices was just a little overwhelming and hard. And we didn't even talk about that yet. Yeah, I mean, when you don't pay yourself, uh, shit, you, the mortgage people come. So you're talking about your house? Yeah, yeah, I talk about my yeah, home. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so what changed? What was the biggest thing that changed where you where you were able to take a payment? Um, was, we were no longer in the first second year where it was like this terror of like will we make payroll? We had figured out how to cash flow better. We figured out how to be smarter with equipment. So, two thousand fifteen, mm-hmm. um, you're you're promoting all these people. You have a director of operations. You're having all these people, different layers. So you might be making more money, but now you're giving that to other people, right? I mean, so your your cost, your labor expenses. My labor up. was always going up. I mean, labor is the highest number of anything. We, we, yeah. we labor is very high. You said equipment. So we so when I first opened, I mean, I couldn't afford much. So I bought the entry level coolers. I bought entry level everything because I was like, hey, if we can get past the first fucking year, we'll deal with whatever we have on the other side. Well, it turns out I replaced every single piece of equipment except my mixer within twelve so to fifteen months. Any bit of black was going into operational expense. Every cost of good. One hundred percent. You're building out your, your your infrastructure. To this day, it goes into equipment. Yeah. yeah. To this day, it's always reinvested. You said cash flow. Was different. You started getting better with cash flow. What specifically did you start doing different with the cash flow? 
Uh, not running it right to the fucking empty line, right? Just being smarter about it, socking money away, buying better, understanding my P&L a little better. What do you mean stocking money away? So like we would get hit hard in June and July with catering, and we would just suck money away yeah, and just make sure that we were there and solvent in January and February because we would lose – you know, two thirds of our business would go away. Yeah, I mean, just to put it in perspective, that goes from a ninety-five thousand dollar week to a thirty thousand dollar week. Yeah, have you ever heard of Profit First? No, it's a it's a cash flow management process. Okay, that I because you said cash flow and it triggered that thought. For sure, me. I, I use it here at Restaurant Unstoppable. And it's this idea that you have basically you treat it's the envelope system. You, you know, so what your grandma did to pay the bills. Mm-hmm. You know, you put cash aside for the different expenses you have. Yeah, so there's five checking accounts treat them as envelopes incomes where all the cash comes in profit is where you put 10 percent to make sure you're paying yourself mm-hmm. because that's really at the end of the day you got to take your profit owners pay operational expense tax so it's like basically and, and then you fill those those envelopes and you make sure your cash is there anything extra would go back to operational expense and that determines your growth Absolutely. I love it. That's brilliant. Yeah. It's, it is Mike McCallowitz. Profit okay. first. It's a great book. Um, I digress. Uh, so anything like anything we haven't talked about right now in terms of, we haven't talked about the pivot. I think that's the big, what was the pivot? 2020. So, or did you want to unpackage more 2016? I don't think we necessarily do. I mean, I think so 2016 hits. This is when I meet Bobby. We do grocery games. We did a couple of those tournaments and that kept kind of leveling us up, leveling us up. The Super Bowl came here in 18. We just kept kind of ratcheting up everything at that point. Our, we became a little bit more well-known in the community. And um, it was just kind of the ratchet period was yeah. from 15 and then all the way up to about 20. And in 20, uh, I had a lot of personal stuff that I went through in 19. And uh, I was diagnosed with a, a disease that I had had my whole life called ankylosing spondylitis. It fuses my joints oh. uh, without wanting to. That sucks. So my, uh, my SI joints are fused solid. My lower lumbar is fused solid. A lot of mobility issues. They told me I'd be in a wheelchair in eight years. It was a really hard time in my life. I uh, tried to solve it with an autoimmune protocol where I stopped eating gluten, dairy, nuts, legumes, nightshades, caffeine, sugar, alcohol which is tough when you own a restaurant that serves pizza and, and beer and beer yeah, yeah. tell me about it so you i did that for two years oh man uh and then in 19 that's when things kind of hit ahead um i didn't want to see i'd never been to anywhere really uh and so i went on a trip i wanted to see italy uh standing not in a wheelchair and i was nervous about that so we went to italy for uh, a long trip, my family and I, uh, that was super eye-opening. I went there with the notion that I was going to see that country through my eyes, not my mouth. That lasted three days. Um, <laughs> I had my first pizza on the shores of Lago de Orta in 19. That was a pretty magical moment that I hadn't had in pizza in about two years. Um, so you're thinking to yourself, i got to do the things I, I always wanted to do while I still can. Yeah, and that's and I brought up this trip because it was there on that trip. And we, we didn't go into any major cities. We saw that whole country from the back roads of Italy, from Milan through Piedmont, all the way back down through central Italy, down to Puglia, and then back up and out of Rome. Uh, we drove 4,700 kilometers uh, in a rented car. It was the trip of a lifetime, wow. largely unplanned. Uh, just get out there and see the world. And actually wildly affordable. Uh, I think the flights were the most expensive part. Right. Um, 
But it was on that trip that I had the probably the biggest and most powerful epiphany about my business. Once I created this place, it became me. You know, I am this business. I am Red Wagon Pizza. You are a restaurant unstoppable. Um, and it was on that trip that I realized, well, what happens if Red Wagon doesn't exist anymore? Mm. What if I can't do the job anymore? What if I, what if I end up in the wheelchair? Or I can't, you know, what happens? If, if I am the thing, if I am the business, what happens if the, to me if the business goes away? So that was always the fear, right? Don't lose the business. This Drive is 2019. Business. This is 2019. Four years ago. June and 19. Almost five. And that's when I realized the fear again. What happens if there isn't a red wagon? On that trip, I realized maybe red wagon isn't the point. And that's when I realized Red Wagon was the vessel. I pursued a deeper, more meaningful connection with people. And I found that through my food. And it put me in front of more people where I connected with more people. And I had the opportunity to learn from more people and help those people achieve what they want in life. It was an eye-opening moment. I'm not putting great words to it. And I apologize, Eric. No, you are. It was a really powerful... You're putting such great words to it and I'm just letting you go. It just... The red wagon was never the point, was my moment. The point was more, I wanted more of me in the world somehow. And I wanted to connect with more people somehow. And red, red wagon was that vessel. Yeah. What I'm hearing, what I'm, what, what's boiling up inside me as I hear you talk is, is Simon Sinek's, one of his latest books, The Infinite Game. Are you familiar with that book? It's a great, awesome, audible book. You can listen <laughs> right. to it. Um, but what he's talking about in that book is exactly what you're addressing right now is that we need to be – there's the, the, the definitive game, which is like you're trying to be the best. You're trying mm-hmm. to win. But the infinite game has no winner. Yeah. It goes beyond you. It's when you come to an end, you pass the baton to the next. It's a, it's a way of being. It's a set of values. It's a, the change you want to see in the world. Yeah. And that can live beyond you, and that lives beyond you in the next generation. Yeah. Is that, I think, is that what I'm hearing? Yeah, you are. Because when, when, I, when I got back, I, I have a really good friend that helped me kind of also find words to this notion that, like, a lot of times there's a lot of pizza joints in this neighborhood, right? We've got a lot of really well-known ones. And people feel like, well, if I go to the Broder's Cucina Italiana, which is a 42-year restaurant right up the street, fantastic family. The Broder's, I love them to pieces. Charlie Broder's easily one of my closest friends. But if you go to Broder's, Red Wagon loses that night. Or if they come to me, Broder's loses. Life isn't pie. Just because their slice is a little bigger one night doesn't mean my slice has to be smaller. There's enough for everybody. Mm. We live in a world where we have a lot of consumers. And we have no shortage of people trying to find tables on the dinner hour on any night of the week. So instead of this concept of competition... It's the all boats rise. We all do better together. Abundance mentality. Yeah. Yeah. And so I think that's where I really started to really take hold in me and understanding that though I've always believed that, I'd never have tried to use this place as a vessel to promote it. 
And I think you live it. And I think I know I'm privy to some information because of our previous conversation before we hit record. Mm-hmm. You have another restaurant owner as your CDC. Uh, yes, he's actually in a sense. In a sense. So he's a uh, executive Sue and he has uh, a business that he's incubating here and he's doing pop ups. Uh, what kind a month? of pop-ups? Uh, pizza pop-ups. Wait, so you mean to tell me that you're letting some other pizza guy take your yeah, business? Yeah, Farina and- Rosa. You should check them out. Food's dynamite. They're pop-ups on the 11th. There's another one in January. I think they're sold out for this month. And uh, JM is hugely talented. He's an incredible guy. And um, what's JM's at? Is that what he goes by? Yeah. Okay. So JM... Um, I wasn't sure if that was a nickname or not. I want to make sure. No, John Michael Lynch is gotcha, his full gotcha. name. Um, so... What you what you're what you're you're literally walking the walk. You're realizing that you are not defined. This this was a vessel for you to 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 take something greater, an infinite game. And, and I, if I'm reading between the lines, it sounds like the inf- the infinite game is you p- passing on your life experiences, wisdom, what you've known to be true onto the next. And it's it's bringing other people up. I think that's a big part of it. I think there's also the the idea that. You know, if you want to attract the right people to your business, why are they there? It can't be just money. It can't be just to serve your dream. Right. So if we could ever figure out an equation where if it's good for you and it's good for mm. me, we can do a thing, then we should fucking do that. Yeah. So And it started, the first one that started doing that with me is a young man named Alex Dayton. Alex Dayton was my CDC back in 15 when we first hit uh, the TV and yeah, he and I have been very close through the years. Wildly talented guy. I mean, this guy, his pasta programs uh, have helped define this city in so many ways at a number of different restaurants. And he started a business over COVID called Aliment Pasta that he sells into co-ops. And it's hand-rolled, filled pastas made with heritage grain. It's dynamite food. It's incredible. And I've hired him to buy some of his pasta for wholesale because instead of paying a pasta-specific staff member to roll pastas every day, instead of having that labor take on, I can just buy it from Alex. It's like the idea of, you know, where do you get your bread? From the guy who makes the bread in town, right? right. So Alex, his business is slowly gaining headway, and it's okay. growing. So until it's at a point where it can fully sustain his family, he needs side hustle business. So, so he's my executive chef now. Your why is to create opportunity for other people. Exactly. I love that. Not just for me. Yes. And I think that when you take that approach, when you make it about everyone else but you, what ends up happening, a byproduct of that is you get taken care of too. Ideally, but I can't, I don't want to ever think that I'm doing this just for other people. Like this, I, there's a selfishness to this. I, one, I feel really good about myself doing things That's like the that. invisible hand, man. That's the invisible hand. Adam, I think Adam uh, Smith talks about that in the, oh, the hell's the name of that book. Um, Man, you're fucking super well read, dude. Like I was not prepared for all your quotes. Super listening, super <laughs> listen, well listened. Um, a great listener, um, Adam Smith. He's a, the 17th century economist that kind of coined this idea that if you if you open a business, you have a moral obligation to add value to everybody it touches. He is enlightened awesome. hospitality. Hell yeah! The, the principles he shared in that book in the 17th century was exactly what Danny Myers preaches today. Wow. It's about lifting up everybody around you. And it was like that for the majority of the time. This was the accepted like school of thought until Milton Friedman in 1970 was like, no, it's about being profitable. And everybody, for some reason, was like, that's what we have to do. Because it became, <laughs> it became a finite game. It became a definite game to be the best. And I'm quoting... Yeah. Um, I'm quoting... Um, 
uh, Simon Sinek right now in the book The Infinite Game, and it's a recent read, so it's fresh in my mind. I'm okay. Not that impressive. <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, but it's about it's about it's about lifting up everyone else, and what ends up happening is all ships rise. If you lift up the other ships, other ships, they in turn lift you up, and it's yeah. a, it's a never ending cycle. And that's what we're here to do to inspire, empower, and transform the industry. Hell by yeah! An example. So you asked me during the break, is this good? Am I offering good stuff? I'm like, yeah, man, <laughs> you're, you're 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 serving the mission right now. You I love know, it. This is, this is awesome. Um, is there anything we haven't discussed that you want to get out? We're, we're, no, we're, I don't think so. This has been a lot of fun. There's one more thing I wanted to bring to the service before I start at, at, like wrapping up my standard questions at the end. Um, I saw that you're using talk. And I yes. think, uh, and I wanted to bring talk to the surface because, again, back to this idea of the experience economy, mm-hmm. it's a platform that, it's a POS that is designed to recognize that we are in the experience economy. It's a reservations platform. Thank you. Thank you for correcting me. Reservations platform designed to, so you, like, what was it about talk? Why talk? T-O-C-K. Uh, we use talk. Uh, so COVID hits. All the shit hits the fan. When we go back to reopen after our long closure, we knew that people wanted to know they would have a table. And we also wanted to know how many people would be coming in. So we had never yet done reservations prior to COVID. And so at that point, it was just kind of what the most popular one seemed to make sense. Uh, my friend Gavin was using it at Soigne and all his restaurants. And uh, a lot of other peers in town were also using it. And so it just seemed like the right avenue to go down. Yeah, I had Nick Akonis on the show. Um, so Nick Akonis, uh business partners with Grant Ackett's. Those mm-hmm. are two names I know I'm always butchering whenever I say them. No, you said Grant's, right? Did I? Good. Mm-hmm. I'm always afraid. I might have screwed up Nick Akonis. Sorry, Nick, if you're listening to this. <laughs> but um, they he was a dividends like the like the dividends trade broker or something like that, and he sees the world through the like the world of math and numbers. Mm-hmm. And I think he recognized he's like why like. An experience on a Friday night isn't the same value as an experience on a Tuesday night because that experience is in higher demand on a Friday night. Right. And the rate at which you cha- charge should be higher because the, the supply and demand. Each one of our seats in a restaurant is real estate. If that real estate is in higher demand, it's worth more. So he, he developed this platform to have a sliding scale so you can recognize your value on different days of the week. And I mean, I, is is how are you using it? Is it just more for selling your events? So it's reservations. So if you wanted a table of 16 on a Friday on the 22nd of December, you'd go to the platform and secure your table. We also sell uh, the classes and events. So um, we have in this expanded space we call the Brookside. Uh, we have an event space in here. We also have uh, the, what we call the Brookside Kitchen, which is where I teach the Pizza with Pete classes that were born over covid over COVID, we did these uh, online on Zoom calls, and I would send packages with frozen food all over the country nice. and with instructions on what to do. We'd yes. meet up on a Zoom call. After COVID, people wanted to do those face-to-face. So we used talk in order to uh, basically sell the slots. So it's almost it's a reservations platform, but it, it's more than that in the sense that it's an event management platform. Exactly. And we're in the experience economy. Again, I'm echoing this. Mm-hmm. And we, I don't think... You're diversifying your cash flow. You have so now you have your restaurant, mm-hmm. right, where people can come in and dine and make a reservation for a table. Yeah. Then you have your special events, which is coming in uh, where there's a special unique event where you get to cook with Chef Pete. Yep. And then there's their catering. And what else am I missing as far as, far as your, your prefix meals? Are you still shipping those out? We're not doing the sh- pre-ship me. Uh, we're not shipping those out. So 
it was uh, April of 2020, uh, April 1st, actually, a guy called and said, hey, we, we got the Food Network to sign up for uh, three episodes of Triple D Takeout Edition. And I hung up the phone thinking he was fucking with me. And the next morning, I looked at my wife and I said, the best thing about Guy and that effect is that people pull the door. And I had just taken the door handle off the door because we weren't letting anyone into the restaurant at all. And it was the beginning of COVID. Yeah. I had an out-of-date website. I sold gift cards only on it. And I said to myself, Jackie, they're gonna air, we're going to film this. My wife filmed it on her phone, and it went in the box and on air by May 1st. Wow. It's a short, short time lapse to edit and to air. At that time, everyone's joking about how they finished Hulu. They've gotten to the end of the internet. And I knew everyone was drunk at home on a Friday night waiting for new content. And the <laughs> biggest guy on the Food Network is about to put up three new shows. Uh, I said, Jackie, we've got to figure out how to freeze and ship our pizzas across the country without losing our shirt. Mm. And I did it. Um, uh, with the help of a lot of other people, uh, friends helped me with vacuum sealing machines, uh, blast freezers. Did I see you're in Gold Belly? So at first we were not on Gold Belly. Okay. I, I didn't get any calls back from Gold Belly at first because um, I think everybody was trying to get on Gold Belly. Yeah. But I knew May 1 would come and I needed to be able to ship that food. And so I was sending Bobby packages from here. And the first one I sent was Bobby Marcotte. Bobby Marcotte. The first Tuckaway one, Tavern, New Hampshire. Represent. Hop and Grind. Yeah. Rise and Grind. Yeah. So the first one I sent out was $175 for the box. Next day, aired on dry ice. Package was 15 inches by 15 inches, 6 inches thick, 13 pounds. Wow. And it was 175 So I got on the phone for about four days with UPS and negotiate some sort of contract because they wanted to see my shipping power over a six-month period. I said, well, wait a second. I need this to hit now. I can't. In six months, it won't fucking matter. Once that, that, the, the guy dust will be, have blown off of me by then. I need this to work come May 1. The guy does? Is that the inerrant? I don't know. That's what I got. <laughs> He's amazing. But I knew like, that it was going gonna, gonna to fade away, right? It was going to be hot as fuck May 1. And so I toiled over it every day. We figured it out. My team and I, we, we figured out how to get it done. I negotiated that contract, that same box, the day before May 1 hits. I successfully sent a box to Bobby, and it cost me $32. So then we charged 100 bucks a box, got four pizzas, and a $25 flat rate to ship it. And we did that on our own for four months. At the end of that, that's when Guy had put Gold Belly in touch with the other people that had been on Triple D Takeout. And we negotiated a deal to get onto Gold Belly. And Gold Belly is simply a storefront. We right. still produce it's everything here. It's yeah. a marketplace. Uh, but that move, what Guy did with getting us on that show again. Yeah. And it's hard to get accepted into Gold Belly, too. It's really I should hard. just preface that if you're listening to this. Like, you've got to be a staple within the community. And the idea of that is if you grew up in Minneapolis and you're living in Miami and you want your Red Wagon pizza, you can get it. Yeah, and there's a lot of other ones out there. Broders, Lola. I mean, yeah. a lot of people are on there now. You need to have a cult following. You have to have, well, you have, to have a big followership. Yeah. And I think I'm very fortunate to be among the few in this city that are on that platform. Uh, but that first call that Guy made, that, that move saved – not only the, the 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 people that benefited from the twenty five million dollars he helped raise in the first three months of COVID, but it also helped me save my business. Yeah. We're talking before we started today, and I was like, Guy Fieri is a guy. I didn't mean to do that, but I like the way it works. Um, guy Fieri is a guy that I think the the industry, like going back like eight seven years ago, kind of got a bad rep for being kind of phony, not a real chef. And these are things I heard from other people mm. in the industry. I disagree. I. <laughs> yeah, I'm getting there. I'm getting there. And I, I don't I I don't know if there's a single man or woman who's single handedly 
added so much value to independent restaurant operators across the country. Like he, since day one, though, yeah. And it's not just the show; it's what he's do, what he continues to do thereafter. Yeah. And I just want like, I don't know. I just want to take a moment to recognize. Hundred percent. Like, he doesn't need to do that show. Right. He doesn't need to do that show. He does that show because he knows the impact. The coolest part about doing that Triple D takeout show was the phone calls that I would get from Guy at 11 o'clock at night when he'd be standing with another chef that they just filmed Triple D with. And he'd be like, you got to talk to Pete. For some reason, I became the guy that like knew how to ship stuff in his mind. Mm-hmm. And I, I, it was an honor, and I continued to... He's a connector. He's amazing. He is a connector yeah. of people, the great Alchemator. I mean, he is an amazing human being, but um, he's allowed me the honor of helping others with shipping and figuring that out. And right. I know Bobby has done a bunch with that. Bobby t- ships a ton of food as well. I'm like 500 places. Like I've, I've been around because like, so many people that I talk to have also been featured on his show. So I'm like one point removed from him from like so many <laughs> different directions. I don't know if anybody, I mean, it's a small industry, but it's like, but the point I'm trying to make is like, I get to hear about these stories Yeah, that from a, from a perspective that not many people are, are privy to because I, I'm, I get to bump up against the same people Yeah, you know? and everybody just says amazing things. Yeah, anyone who has anything bad to say about him, just one doesn't know him, and yeah. haters are going to hate. Right, right. I can't believe, dude, we've been going for an hour and twenty four minutes of like straight recording time with breaks included. Uh, we, I'm loving the conversation. I don't want to wrap it up, but I do want to respect your time. So I'm going to run through some questions real quick. The, Hit the, me. So, um, what is one thing about your business, values, process, systems that's uncommon that makes you truly unstoppable? I feel humility. I think a lot of people out there tend to stand up and beat their chest and say, I'm the best. I make the best pizza on the planet. There's nobody better than me. Um, I don't ever claim that. I do claim that I know how to make the best pizza I know how to make. And I hope tomorrow I'll make it even better. I love that. I love that. Um, Where are we headed in the future of the industry, like where's the industry going or how can we be proactive to kind of steer and be more proactive and thus reactive to the industry? I think you nailed it with the experience stuff we've been talking about this last hour and 25 minutes. Um, I think Will Gadara's book, uh, Unreasonable Hospitality, talks about it a lot. We are no longer in the service industry. We are in the the hospitality industry. Experience economy. Exactly. It's, uh, It's no longer about service of efficiently getting the food you ordered in a timely manner to the table. It's how do we make you feel while we do that? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Because how you feel matters more than pretty much anything and, in this business. And what are you doing to evolve to be a part of that economy going into the future? Listening. For what? For what everyone's talking about. Not the guests that are out there judging and commenting or Yelp reviews. I'm listening to my consumer. What do they want? What are they hungry for? What are they interested in? Do they want? So we started these classes. And I was a little gun shy on it because it's putting yourself out there. And I, yeah. So we loaded the classes up and we sent out an email to the, all the emails that I have in my list. And the first class sold out in like three minutes. And I was like, oh my God. Is that true? Um, so we put another one out there and it sold out again, three and a half minutes. So then we put out a series of classes for December, which again, it didn't sell out as fast, so it made me super gun-shy because I had this curriculum planned for January to do cheese-making classes. Let's learn how to make burrata. Let's learn how to make ricotta. Let's learn how to make filled uh, pastas. Do all of these fun experiential things because, for me, it's a hustle 
when it gets slow in the winter in this state, you got to learn how to like really bring something more yeah. to the table just than a hot cheese yeah. pizza. And doing that on a Tuesday night, when I'm looking at 60% labor, if it's slow, padding that, that, that bottom line with an experience that someone's paying for in a ticketed manner helps everything. Yeah. Um, and this is a question I meant to ask earlier, and it's something I want to start talking about. I'm not going to have you share your, your gross. I don't need that to be public. But what is your percent margin today of profit? Um, not great. Uh, our labor has been kind of garbage over the last uh, six months. Yeah, I don't think I don't see that going down. No, I, <laughs> I mean it doesn't if, go down. If we can, honest. if we can eke out within three uh, percent profit, I'd be psyched for the year. Really? Yeah, which is embarrassing to say. I think it's also a reality of the industry right yeah. now, which is why we have to recognize our value. And also, I think I think it, this all hinges on the consumer mm-hmm. and educating the consumer about where are they choosing to put their money. Because yeah. even at $91 for three glasses of wine, a salad, some chips, and some wings, you're doing 9%, which shows, or sorry, 3%, which shows your dedication to pay it forward to the people that you, that you need to execute this. Yeah, 100%. I mean, that, and that's, that's the point, right? Yeah. I, mean, I didn't get into this to, to just make money. If consumers still want neighborhood restaurants, they need to give their money to their neighborhood. I would agree. And the reality is, too, if you're going to a restaurant that sells burgers, don't compare it to a big box. Don't compare it to a local chain. Right. Um, pizza specific is always tough, right? Because you can go to Domino's and they have $5, $5 pizzas, whatever, they, whatever promo they have. So when someone comes in and they see a pizza for $27, it's 14 inches, mm-hmm. they're like, well, geez. That's a lot. Yeah. Well, it's all right. Well, let's talk about why is it a lot. Our flour goes from wheat berry into a dough ball in three days from a stone mill. The cheese here is grated by hand. My soppressata is made for me by the food building. No one else buys it. No one else can buy it. It is all made and toiled over by us. What an amazing experience that must be to you know be able to to experience this this level that you go to, right? I fucking love it, man. I <laughs> on this my, word experience. It's my favorite. I mean, but that's that, all that is the story that goes into what you're paying. For. Yeah, I and would I think, agree. And I think we could be much better at recognizing our value because we are saving people time and we're creating experiences. Yeah, and and be curious if yeah. you if you're upset at the rate of something, look into it. Be curious as to why. Right. You know, I don't run out the gates and say farm to table. You know, we all saw Portlandia, right? With the, the name of the bird. Right. They wanted to go see where the bird lived. And we don't need to spoon feed people what we create anymore. I don't like doing that. Mm-hmm. I'm saying the farm to table craft made, blah, blah, blah. The reality is I'm, I'm charging $27 for a pizza. If you're curious why it's so expensive, ask the question. Right. I'm not going to spoon feed it to you. Yeah. I don't want to. Mm-hmm. I feel you're intelligent enough to understand what we're doing and you can fucking taste it i hope i i i hear what you're saying and i i i I worry that a lot of consumers aren't intelligent enough because they just don't know you know i think they take it for granted i think we've also kind of fucked up the consumer over the past 70 years making them think that things are worth but that what they were paying for was a broken food system yeah and i don't think a lot of i think we're slowly starting to realize it i think we need to give our consumer a little bit more credit honestly i do i do believe that that if you know your consumer, like for example, if I picked up this restaurant and I put it at 40 miles in any direction, my consumer is very different. Yeah. Five miles in any direction, my consumer is different. 
I know my neighborhood. This neighborhood kept us alive through COVID. Mm-hmm. We didn't let go of our managers. We kept everybody, all the high paying people. They were, they kept us, we kept them on salary, kept them in place. Yeah. And we were held alive here by our neighborhood. Is this a neighborhood that is privileged? I would say so. I mean, for many ways. I mean, it's interesting because you've got three and a half million dollar homes yeah. north of us, and then you have low income housing sixty feet that way. I think in a city, we're in a city. Yeah, I think there's a lot of. My worry is that across the nation, there are what you see here isn't the regular across the nation, the countries, and I don't know. I don't know. Like, I don't know. I also don't think that we're that unique. I think this yeah. neighborhood exists in every city. Mm. I want to believe that. Same. I I I want to believe that. I really do. And I'm hopeful that we're going to get there. I think that it's happening. I agree with you that we have to give them more credit. I think it's happening. Yeah. Yeah, it's happening. Uh, What is one... So if a mission statement is to inspire, empower, and transform the industry, how have you personally transformed? Who are you today versus the man you were in 2014? That is a big fucking question, dude. Oh, ask easy questions. No, you don't. Um, (laughs) I'm grayer. Yeah. A lot greater. It looks good on you, though. Oh, thanks, man. Um, I would like to think that I'm a more evolved person, a more self-aware person. Uh, I never went into any of this thinking I had all the answers. I now know I have none of them. But I try, I've tried a lot of different things, and mm-hmm. I know what works and what doesn't work. I don't know. I don't know how to answer that question. I think you did, man. Okay. Yeah. Um, <laughs> This, you thought that last question was hard. Wait for this next oh, one. Fucker. If you got the news, you'd be leaving this world tomorrow. All the memories of you, your work, and your restaurants would be lost with your departure. With the exception of three pieces of wisdom you could leave behind for the good of humanity and your legacy, or those three pieces of wisdom be? Don't be afraid to fail. One. Trust your gut. Two. Love. Three. Unconditionally. Chef Peter, this has been a lot of fun, my it friend. It has been. Thank you so much. Um... You know, I like to say, like, all I do is ask questions. You make what I do possible. So thank you so much. Um, there was tons of lessons, tons of great conversation in this one. Who do you respect and admire? Somebody that if you found out there were a guest on this podcast, you would want to listen to what they have to say. Who's that for you? I love that you asked that. And quite frankly, I have to tell you, I didn't know you before we sat down, but I respect and admire you. you. And doing this and sharing the story, because I have to imagine... I'm not a big podcaster. I haven't listened to a lot of them, but you have done 1,049 of them as of today. Yes. And I would imagine a lot of them are people like myself at different varying degrees of the, of the profession. Um, there's not a one-size-fits-all. It's always one-size-fits-one. And I love that you're doing this and getting the stories out there of how we create the, those beautiful moments that happen around a table. Um, I admire uh, a number of small operators in town here. Uh, Tim Niver, who we talked about earlier, yes. you're going to go yes. see him soon. Got I, him queued up. Oh, man, I really admire Just Tim. Just went live, forgot to mention his name. Sorry, Tim. <laughs> I'm so excited that you're going to go see him. Yeah. Uh, I, I'm a big admirer of Tim. I'm a big admirer, of course, of Bobby Marcotte. He put me in front of you. Um, my, my friend Steve from Ate It, I admire hugely. Uh, in town here. Regioni? How do you say his last name? Steve Regioni. Yeah, I think that's right. Yeah. I'm not a good person of butchering names. Well, too. Yeah. I know how to butcher them well. I think we're very well aligned <laughs> with our so skills too. and strengths. And, and then Gavin Cason in town here, he's a very dear friend and one 
um, I'm honored to call a close friend uh, in town. I also admire deeply Danny Del Prado, who is a amazing chef and restaurant. How many names have you just dropped on me? So we a have a bunch. Sorry, so not trying to fine. drop names. You asked um, Tim Diver. It was the first one you mentioned. Mm-hmm. Tim, um, Bobby, Bobby, uh, Steve, Steve, uh, Gavin, Casey, Gavin, Daniel Del Prado. Yep. And then I'm going to give you a last and final. And I think you should reach out to them. Is Allison Arth from Salt and Row? Allison. So I am right now four four six, mm-hmm. soon to be five for six because I'm gonna get Tim Niver on the show later this week. Heck yeah! Uh, so that's awesome, man. I mean, hopefully I can still find people five years from now. I'm oh, <laughs> if you had more time, I could give you a longer uh, list. Know, There's man. a lot of amazing people in town that are doing incredible things. Yeah, this city is just amazing with the food scene. It's an honor to be part of it. I love that we've had this chance to share our version of hospitality and cuisine yeah. in that story, and I hope to do it again tomorrow. Yeah, Jared, when you're editing this, please put the links to those episodes. Uh, there, we have them. Um, so if you're listening to this and you want to check out those episodes of the folks that Peter called out, we'll have those in the show notes. This is episode 1049. Head over to restaurantstoppable.com slash 1049. We'll have those links plus any links to tools or services recommended on the show today and how to connect with Peter, which reminds me, how do we connect with you? If we uh, maybe want to come join your team or have questions, follow up. I would say uh, Instagram is a really good method to get direct messages to us. Of course, our website um, walk in the front door, call the restaurant. Do you want to, do you know the website and the handles? I sure do. So it's all, uh, at red wagon pizza company, whether it's Instagram or Facebook. And then it's www.redwagon-mpls.com. And then, uh, my handle is at chef Peter Campbell on Instagram. And, uh, that's an unfiltered little world that I share. Awesome. Silliness on. Chef Peter, thanks again, my man. There is no questioning. You are unstoppable. Oh, my man. Thank you for this. This has been a treat. Pleasure's mine. There's another episode wrapped up here at Restaurant Unstoppable. Special thanks to our guest today, Peter Campbell, for coming on and getting vulnerable, getting real, sharing the story, and just being an inspiration. I love what you got going on here. And now the fun thing about being on the road is I get to actually follow up and go deeper into the subjects, the things we cover on the show. Uh, so one of the things that is really at top of mind right now for me is this idea of an experience economy. And I got to sit through one of Chef Peter Campbell's classes and be a part of it and see how he added value to his guest experience by showing them how they actually make their pizzas and, and educating them on the process and the things that make their pizzas unique and then connecting with their guests on a different level asking questions getting intimate and it just brings a whole new experience and like one thing that's a hot topic for me right now is this idea of 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 the experience economy and i'm having joe pine actually as this episode goes live on december 11th i'm interviewing joe pine today the author of the experience economy we really have to start recognizing the value you bring in creating those experiences and and there's so many different types of showmanship involved in what we do and we, we have to be better about knowing our value in creating these opportunities to increase the value of touch points. And um, I think what Chef Campbell is doing with his uh, pizza classes is a beautiful example of that. We're going to create some more content over at YouTube. If you have not subscribed to our YouTube channel, be sure you do that so you can catch that that extra footage we have over, over there waiting for you. And um, 
Peter Campbell is going to be making himself live in Restaurant Unstoppable Network to answer your questions and to reflect on today's episode. So be sure to join Restaurant Unstoppable Network. We are relaunching the network. It's going to be badass. We're going to have three tiers. The first tier is going to be Content Library. We're organizing all of our content into an easily consumable experience for you. And we're also going to have a community experience at the second tier. And we're going to have a coaching experience at a third tier where you get one-on-one coaching from me and the people that I would be going to tomorrow if I'm opening a restaurant and scaling from zero to five restaurants in five years or less. So lots of cool things happening. Thank you to the people who are making this show possible. Thank you to Jerry Parisi for your copyright and editing and helping me build out the community library. Uh, And then also thank you to Callum Yola as our community, community manager and really taking the lead on the community and what's going on there. We have some really great stuff happening. I cannot wait to share it with you. So stick around for what's coming down the barrel. That's it for today. Until next time, peace out.